0: Okay, we're, we're on. Sorry about that. Um, um, is everyone ready
1: to go? All right. We will now call this regular meeting of the Juvenile Probation Commission to order. Today is Wednesday, July 14, 2021. The time is 5.35 p.m. Madam Secretary, can you please call the roll?
2: President Joseph Ariano. Present. Vice President Catherine Chu. Present. Commissioner Margaret Brodkin. Present.
0: Altonado. Present. Commissioner Toya Moses. Present. Commissioner Andrea Shorter. Present.
2: And Commissioner James Spingola. Present. You have a quorum.
1: Thank you. Well, now uh, move on to item number 2 general public comments Uh, at this time. Do we have any emails or voicemails? uh, Madam secretary.
2: No emails, no voicemails.
1: Thank you. Uh, And I'll just note for the public to uh, raise their hand by pressing star 3 at this time to be added to the general public comment line again star 3. To be added to the line, and we'll just give it a few seconds for the public to go ahead and. Have themselves
3: added, Do we have any members of the public on the line.
4: We do not um, any- you don't have any, any public commenters at
1: this. No, 1 more time before I close general public comment that uh, to be added to the line. Please press star 3 at this time. If you have a general public comment for the commission. On uh, any item that does not appear on tonight's
3: agenda. At this time, is there any hands raised?
0: There are no uh, people
4: with their hands raised, so I just want to clarify 1 thing, because I'm not sure if you understand the uh, raising of the hand. If you permit people to watch the stream and raise their hand. I don't know if your commission permits this, they would not raise their hand in the same manner as someone dialing in by phone. Those who wish to raise their hand. If you permit those people to give public comment. That are watching the stream must open the participant list and then click the raise hand icon at the lower part of the screen in order to do so. Most commissions only permit public comment by phone, but I wanted exactly. to clarify with you how you do it and uh, if you wish for those people to be able to give it, that is how they would do it.
1: Understood. I, I believe, uh, Madam Secretary, we what we do is we do both, I believe. If we have hands raised in the attendee list as well as on the voicemail, Uh, Around the voice line, we take those uh, and we usually make sure that we. Check um, before we move on, is that correct?
2: I believe so. Yes.
1: Great. Well, uh, at this time with no hands raised, we will go ahead and close general public comment and move to uh, item number 3 review and approval of the full commission meeting minutes of our previous meeting on June 9th 2021. Do I have a motion to approve?
5: So move.
1: Do I have a second? Second. At this time, is there any public comment on this uh, motion? Please uh, raise your hands uh, via WebEx or via by uh, pressing star three to be added on the phone line to public comment.
3: Are there any hands raised?
0: There are no
1: hands raised. Madam Secretary, can you uh, conduct a roll call vote?
2: President Ariano? Aye. Vice President Chu,
6: Aye.
0: Commissioner Brodkin? Aye. Commissioner Maldonado? She was having problems with her internet she sent me
2: a text, so Aye. she might drop out. Oh, there she is. Commissioner Moses? Aye. Commissioner Shorter? Aye. And Commissioner Spingola? Aye. Motion passes.
3: Thank
1: you. Uh, we'll now take item number four uh, an update by the Family Mosaic Project. Uh, I believe uh, this was an item that um, all of us were excited to hear, but specifically requested by Commissioner Moses. Uh, so, with this, we'll hand it over to Family Mosaic to go ahead and present.
7: Hi, everyone. I just wanted to um, start by saying hi to everyone. Um, thank you and for inviting us. My name is Farnaz Farman. I'm the director of the Children, Youth, Family System of Care and Behavioral Health at the San Francisco Department of Public Health, not to be confused with the Department of Children, Youth, and their families, which is a different city department under uh, Maria Sue. So I just wanted to um, clarify the semantics I've presented to your commission before on our system of care. And so we're, we're not starting with an overview of our system. We're going to jump right to a presentation on the family mosaic project um, clinic and model. It's 1 of our um, Cadillac programs. It's a civil service clinic within our portfolio that provides intensive case management wrap around services and is a full service partnership program. Janet Avila, the director of FMP, and Calvin Thomas, one of the supervisors at FMP
8: are here to uh, do the presentation. Thank you all. Hi, everyone. Um, Thank you for having us. I have a short presentation, a PowerPoint, um, and then after taking any questions. Um, So I'm just going to go ahead and start. Okay. Hoping everybody can see that. Um, okay. So today I'm going to talk about um, a little bit about our vision, um, some of the history, which is important, um, who we are now, our clients, our staff, um, the wraparound services that we offer, and then finally the referral process. So our vision, our vision is, our mission is to support children and families in their communities by providing outreach and innovative approaches to mental health services. We bring all services to you and your family at home, school, and, or the community. Um, The historical perspective. So FMP has actually been around for a very long time, um, since 1989, Um, at that time, San Francisco identified 948 youth at risk for out of home placement. They noted that 73% had history of prior mental health treatment. 54% had history of psychiatric hospitalizations and attainment at youth guidance center at the time. That's what I believe it was called. Um, 50% had academic and behavioral problems at school. Um, They were receiving special education services. And over 50 of the youth identified had up to five public agencies involved in their lives, with no single entity responsible for the coordination of their care. Okay. Um, So this is, move this over for a second. Okay. So, um, there was a pilot study that was funded by the Robert Wood Johnson foundation to develop a wraparound model of care. This was in 1990 um, to 1995. Family mosaic project was 1 of the 8 demonstration sites accepted for funding. 1 of the conditions of the grant included a development of the long term funding strategy to sustain the program. State Department of Healthcare Services pilot project was established to explore managed care and develop a capitated rate for each client enrolled in the program, which I'll get into in a little bit. 1996 to present. So currently Family Mosaic has a managed care contract still with the California Department of Healthcare Services. So what that means is for every client that's enrolled in our program that is eligible um, under a certain Medi-Cal code, we receive a fixed monthly rate for each of those clients. Um, In the last, let's see, five years, it's actually, we got a new rate, which was exciting. Um, We went from 1800 a month to 3,600 a month per client enrolled in the FMP um, health plan. Other funding sources that we use are Mental Health Services Act, so MHSA funding. Um, That actually helps us with clients who um, maybe don't have insurance, um, have a different type of insurance, like let's say they have Medi-Cal and Kaiser, um, or that we have kids who are maybe in foster care and have an out-of-county. Medi-Cal code. We also have SAMHSA grant and we have some flexible funding, some grant funding. So um, those are all the fundings that we use to support the program. Who we are now, so who do we serve? We serve children under the age of 18 and their families. Um, they, some of the eligibility requirements are that you're a San Francisco resident, um, that you're at risk of out of home placement, that you have multiple system involvement, um, and that you have chronic and maybe acute behaviors that have been identified. Our staff at FMP, we have a business office that is really um, the part that runs all of our funding, um, our service authorizations um, and our grants. We have the care coordinators who are master's level um, licensed clinicians. We have behavioral support staff, health workers one through four, two to I'm sorry, two to four, we have a medical team, nurse, psychiatrist, psychologist, um, supervisors. So, those are all the staff at FMP. The clients we serve. So, out of the 210 clients, ages five to 17, this is the breakdown um, of the clients that we serve in San Francisco. So, as you see, 58% African American, 23% is Latin X, 10% Asian Pacific Islander, and 9% is Caucasian. Our family wraparound principles. So we follow the nine principles of the wraparound model. Um, Family voice and choice is the first one, team-based, natural supports, collaboration, community-based, which means well, let me start with the family voice and choice. So it's really important for us that the families take part in planning the services that they need for their families. Um, this is really run through a child and family team meeting where the parent or legal guardian somewhat takes the lead in identifying what they need and it's then it's our job to provide them the necessary tools to get those goals accomplished. Um, the team-based model uh, basically means that we have um, our behavioral support staff, care coordinators, psychiatrists, we have. We work with CBOs, we work with anyone that the family has identified as part of their team. Natural supports is, means that we really look to see who in the family's ecology can help support some of these goals and support the family throughout the process. Um, the collaboration means that we're all working together. Um, We're evaluating the plan each and every time, making sure that we are still within um, the goals that the family has identified. Community based, which is probably the most important um, 1 of the most important goals for us here is that everyone at family mosaic project. provides services in the community in their homes um, at the schools, wherever the family needs us to be, and that includes psychiatry, nursing, everyone. So everyone that's hired is told up front that all the services are provided in the community. Individualized means that, you know, the family is developing their own plan. The strength base is that we build on the strengths of the family. We really try to focus on what the family has going on and. How we can make that stronger, um, persistent. So, um. We have a lot of challenges, as you can imagine, um, in working in uh, with so many different behaviors and um, situations. And so we really try as a team to get through those barriers together with the family. And outcome-based means that we're all accountable um, for every measure and goal that we provide. Okay, so this is, Um, So, these are our services. We have three phases of treatment. The first one is engagement, and that's where the care coordinator and behavioral support counselors will meet with a parent or caregiver and complete um, an assessment within 30 days and define goals within 45 days. The action, that's where we're developing the plan and coming up with um, goals to put services in place. Um, And that is also developed during the child and family team meeting. And then the transition phase is when they're preparing for graduation. The services that we provide, um, which is, is care coordination, mentoring, tutoring, individual therapy, family, couples, parenting therapy, medication support services, case management, health education, behavioral skill building, school placement, and TBS services. Um, so let me go back to that. Um, And let me just say that, so Federal Mosaic has a lot of flexible funding, which then allows us to not only focus on the mental health piece um, for the children and family, but we can also focus on other things that may be helpful. For example, we can pay for um, art classes somewhere um, or boxing classes or something that is a positive recreational activity. So we have funding for that. We also have funding to help when you know, maybe we need to pay for a uniform, or the family can't pay um, for certain things uh, like art supplies, and we're putting the child in art classes so we can help fund for some of that. So, we have lots of flex funding along with all these services mentoring, tutoring. Um, some of them come directly from us, and some of them we outsource. Okay, so the criteria. Um, Again, as a youth is San Francisco resident, youth has San Francisco Medi-Cal, youth is um, under the age of 18, they're at risk of -of out-of-home placement or a higher level of care. Youth is at contact with the Department of Human Service agency or involved in multiple systems like HSA, juvenile justice, um, special education. So other factors that we look at is that um, even though we say youth is a San Francisco resident, that can mean that they're placed here from another county through foster care or um, or maybe they're um, we've had a lot of children lately who have been homeless and just coming from different counties so that they are not really an established San Francisco resident yet uh, other factors are they may not have insurance. Um, but have been maybe 5150 and need services right away. So we have some flexible funding to be able to cover those services. Um, And then the other is the youth needs a higher level of service other than maybe what they're receiving at an outpatient level. They've just risen to a higher level and need more services. And finally, these are the ways that you would refer to our program. so, for HSA, they can refer directly to us through um, our intake coordinator Her name is Dana Landry. Their information is here. Uh, juvenile Justice Center, we primarily um, receive referrals from Aim AIMHIRE um, and they also go to directly to Dana. And then for our partners, our outpatient clinics, CBOs, these referrals are presented at a meeting that we hold um, every Tuesday. And we do the screening and criteria eligibility there. Okay, so. Stop sharing here and that's it. I guess I can open it up for any questions.
1: Thank you so much. (laughs) Commissioner Moses, go ahead.
3: Yeah,
5: Thank you for. A very, very fine presentation. I'm very familiar with family mosaic. I remember when Dr. Abner boss used to be there a long, long time ago. And also I work in, I work in the neighborhood for 26 years at Southeast. I retired now and um, I, I believe you've been to. family mosaic. I've been to my commission too, and I'm going to keep asking the same question. You are serving about 58% um, African American, could you share with us how many of them are from. The South Sector, like, you know, Bayview, Potrero and Sunnyvale. And you also work closely with the grandparents who care because most grandparents, they do not like to see their kids being sent away or out of care as a sort. They end up, you know, getting stuck with them. And mm-hmm. uh, some of these uh, grandparents do not have any income. They just depend on such as security and things like that. So, those are my question. Do you work closely with them? And also the percentage of African American that you serve? Where are they from? Thank so, you.
8: for the Southeast sector, I would say we're about 60 to 65%, maybe even a little higher. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the clients primarily that we serve. Um, and as far as the grandparents, so we definitely work with a lot of grandparents. Um, we, we work with the entire family. So the services are not just for the child themselves, but we work with the entire family. Um, It could be, and we include everyone that they want to include, whether it's a grandparent, an aunt, um, a pastor, whoever they identify as their team is who we work with. And we provide therapy services also for the adults. So it's not just all for the children. Sometimes we have parents who come in, um, legal guardians, grandparents, who need a little extra support and we'll provide the therapy services for them as well.
5: Um, once your success rate on that, you know, how do you handle the revolving door? People keep calling back and go and things like that.
8: Um, so I'll answer it this way. I actually used to work for family mosaic, um, back in 1998, I believe until 2005 I and I myself, I experienced a lot of the revolving door at that time. Um, Having come back to Family Mosaic as a director, we worked really hard in 2012 to 2014 to develop a model. Um, And I'm happy to say that that revolving door is much less than what I would see um, a long time ago. The clinicians that we hire, we really um, try to handpick the people that we have working for us. We want them to love what they do. Um, and it shows through their work and I think that's part of it as well and they're in constant communication with the clients and their family. Um, when I worked there, the model was different. And so we've come a long way from that model to a new 1 and I think that this 1 is. Somewhat successful, it's not perfect, but. It's 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 okay.
5: Okay, well, thank you. I'm well. Mm-hmm. At somebody take over. Thank you again.
8: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Commissioner Brockin, see your hand raised?
9: Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, but are other people going to speak? Because, um, no, I mean, other presenters. So, so. I too remember Abner Bowles and the origin of this program. And I also remember some of the ups and downs uh, of the program. But my main interest now, and I presume it's um, Commissioner Moses' interest, is how many of these kids are in the in our, our our kids in the juvenile probation system? Do you have a way to track that? And mm-hmm. you know, do you have an aggressive way to make sure you are serving those kids? Because I just uh, attended a meeting like the last meeting where we were talking about who's in the juvenile hall, and it was made a a point very clear that uh, a number of those young people had very serious mental health problems. So, I don't know how the connection is made. I also am looking at a, a slide presented by DPH to us about where do justice involved youth receive behavioral health services. And I see a list of like 10 places, but Family Mosaic is not on them.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
9: SPY, Seneca, Boys and Girls, uh, YMCA, Community Health, uh, Rams. Um, so I, I, I really want to know what the connection is to our system and how you know targeted it is and how it could become, you know, past- I mean, you have incredible resources. I love your model. I love the flexibility. I love the idea of meeting in people's homes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we have a lot of kids in our system with mental health issues. And I I guess I'm not sure how you are reaching them. And sir mm-hmm. uh, my so one of so that's my major question and concern and what we can do to improve yep. that. Um, but secondly is just you know, how many young, how many people are you serving? Um, because mm-hmm. it's a very rich program with yes. uh, um, with a lot of resources that young people in the probation system desperately need.
8: Yeah, so, uh, well, let me start. So it's that's a lot of questions, but I'm gonna try to answer as best I can. So right now we serve about. 10 to 12 kids who have had a contact with probation or are on probation or um, in the middle of dispo, some, you know, somewhere along those lines uh, we in the past few years, we had a lot more referrals. We um, have a program that we absorbed that actually was a part of at 1 time called multi systemic therapy, which was um, right. They had a partnership with probation from 2005 to about 2012. Um, and I was one of those clinicians and when I came to FMP we absorbed that program into FMP and at that time we were bringing a lot more probation cases in. Um, We also have a unit of psychiatrists who work primarily with um, boys and girls on probation um, through our program right they work uh, directly with um, providing services when they're connected with a CBO. So those are our psychiatrists. They also provide medication services um, to those clients. Um, I will say that in the past what, few what years,
9: CBOs, Janet, what CBOs are you talking about?
8: Instituto um, Familiar de la Raza, so IFR. Um, let me think. Um, I would have to, I'm trying to remember. Oh, I just blanked on all the names, but I know it's IFR. <laughs> That's one of them. <laughs> so I just blanked. Yeah, like, I, I can't it
9: help. I can't help but point out that the number of Latinx young people in our system is so much less than the preponderance of African American. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I always look at that data, Abby, since there. Are, I think there are many more Latinx kids in the city than African American, and wonder. Is it something about the relationship between services and the mission based agencies or so? So you're mentioning that and remembering that sort of calls to mind that as an issue for me, just by the way.
8: Yeah, okay. uh, but let goes. me just go a little bit back to the connection. So our intake worker, Dana Landry was an MSC clinician. So she has a um, a good relationship with aim hire, which is primarily our connection. Um We also. We'll take uh, referrals from probation offers that that we've worked with for years and have relationships with, Um, but. I, I'm not sure what the numbers are up at JJC right now, and maybe that is also a reason why. They're not a lot of kids coming through JJC right now, and maybe that's why we're not also getting a lot of referrals, but we're completely open to receiving referrals. So.
7: Can I can I jump in commissioner broad? Can you made reference to a question about a slide? You read from our department listing the the programs that serve JPD involved youth. Um, If I remember that slide correctly, that's, that's really speaking to when we presented that information. We've talked specifically about how there are programs in our system that are dedicated to serving justice involved. youth. So they have whole reporting units in our electronic health records and everything that are dedicated to justice involved youth and that entire program. So the ISDS providers, certain RAP provide, like there's certain programs that are dedicated. And so the programs you read off were programs that are dedicated to justice involved youth, like the ISDS providers and Um, other providers. We also made mention that our entire network of civil service clinics, our outpatient clinics, our intensive case management clinics, as well as the 35 to 40 community-based organizations that we contract with that provide various levels of care can at any point work with kids that are justice involved. And it's a lot harder for us at the system level. Janet, as the director of FMP, to know how many kids might be justice-involved, but at the system level, when we have seven civil service clinics and 35 to 40 community-based organizations, we've talked about the limitations of tracking kids that are justice-involved that are in our system through the mechanisms that we have. We have some mechanisms and they're not perfect and it's always an underestimate. So the slides you read off are programs that are dedicated to justice-involved um, youth. I just wanted to clarify that point. And and related to the youth we serve, um, even though in San Francisco County, the proportion might be higher. I don't know what the proportion of demographics are for youth, but in in the children, youth, family system of care, the Latinx and the African-American youth have always been about the same proportion as the highest in our our network of um, youth being served by specialty mental health. They're always kind of at equal footing one kind of rises over the other at some points, but those two are always, it's typically always Latinx, closely followed by African-American and then um, uh, API communities are third.
9: Well, do you think it's an issue? I mean, can we improve upon this if we don't have a way to track it and you can identify 7 or 8 young people and we have a lot of young people in our system with mental health problems and all the community people. I talk to are sort of desperate for psyche, you know, access to psychiatric to to psychiatric care and your program sounds like, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, so I would have an interest and see if you have an interest in tracking and increasing the referrals and making that link much more um, stronger and, in you know, especially, I mean, when we have kids who are incarcerated because of mental health issues and you have so much to offer them
7: yeah we're we're absolutely interested you know in terms of and I'm hoping with the closed juvenile hall work group and the um, expansion of community alternatives and the assessment and the coordinating hub that you' you all are thinking about the data systems of how we are coordinating because we're not just trying to look at the kids that are in specialty mental health, which is a very small sliver which we do have mechanisms to pull in our ehR they're just not per. It's based on the assessment that happens every six months. You might be just involved one month, not the other month when you're doing the assessment, right? So, there's mechanisms that are not perfect, and the it, it's it's dynamic data that changes at any point. So, th- there's complications that I don't want to get into the weeds around, but that's just one system. We've got DCYF that serves a lot of that a lot of community-based organizations that are not specialty mental health serves. So, we we need a system that integrates across the entire county in terms of the full spectrum of prevention, early intervention, um, health promotion, all the way through folks in the in, you know in the alternative um, I don't know what it's being called, the alternative placement <laughs> site um, that is being reconsidered. we need to think about a data mechanism strategy across the entire network. Um, so yes, totally totally excited to be on board with that.
5: I just want to follow up with well, what um, Commissioner Brad can say about improving the system of uh, outreach. And I think it's very, very important. As you know, Baby is so diverse now, it used to be 65 percent African-American. I believe it's kind of gone down to about 45 now. So that means we have Asian-American, we have Hispanic, you know, American and baby now. So we have to find a way of. You know reaching out to them too, so we're not just be you know this. So I think the outreach needs to be important. You know, you need to work closely. With, we have several schools now in Bayview, you know, Willie Brown uh, Elementary School and some other schools like that. Have you reached out to the schools in Bayview now, particularly
0: especially to their parents, you know, PTA? I can speak okay. to broad strategies, and then Janet, do
7: you want to speak to FMP? We yep. do outside of um, just the Family Mosaic project. We do have um, programs that specifically focus on the Black and African American community that are staffed by Black and African American staff that do a lot of the lower threshold outreach and engagement, community trust and um, and, and network building um, uh, in the community to help outreach um, to that community um destigmatize mental health um and connect folks to services. So we do have those strategies and, and I'll let Janet speak specifically to FMP and, and their work with the schools.
5: Well, could you be specific? Look at you kind of speaking in general we do we do this. Could you be straight like CBO or or some that you work with? Could you identify some of them please?
7: Yeah, MAA is the program at the um, Homeless Children's Network, HCN, one of our contracted providers. MAA is heavily funded by the Department of Children, Youth and Families, as well as um, us, the Department of Public Health and CYF, to have a hub and spoke model where they're connected to a lot of the schools and community-based partners. Um, it's a 100% African-American staff program dedicated to African-American communities. We also have Kuamba in our own Southeast Child Family Therapy Center program. Um, uh, led by one of the um, African American female supervisors there, OMALADE, That does. It's a very similar model, uh, and and work. And they're heavily involved in the primary care clinics and schools. So there's Kuamba at Southeast Child Family Therapy Center. There's Ma at Homeless Children's Network, one of our contracted providers. Those are two of our specific African American strategies.
5: If you don't mind, can, if it's not too much sensitive or too, you know. Could you share with the ethnicity on your staff, please?
7: On the, on the leadership team, like in administration, or are you talking about Janet's FMP?
0: In general. In
5: general.
8: In general, okay. I, um, I, mean, I could talk, oh, Sorry. I can start oh, with the ahead, FMP. Um, so at FMP, um, 45% of staff are Latinx. are African-American, 10% are Asian, Pacific Islander, and 5% are Caucasian. Um, What I can, what I can. What I can do
7: is, we have a workforce demographic report. If you'd like me to send it um, to your, um, to pa- Pauline, I think it's Pauline. Um, um, I can send you the report of our of our civil service clinics. We have an entire report that breaks down the staff versus the clients we serve in terms of race and linguistic capacity. If you'd like to see that,
0: okay, that will
5: be fine. I'm we just trying to find a way of you helping. Happy- you know, you with the out, uh, outreach, which is very important. We really want people in the neighborhood to be able to take advantage of you, to be able to know that you are still there and you're doing great. So that's my concern. Anything we can do to help, our team will be glad to help with that. You know, a lot of CBOs in Bayview now.
8: Yeah, thank you so much. I'm gonna pass it over to Calvin. He's gonna talk a little bit about our
10: outreach. Hey, can I can I can I ask them to go oh, oh, okay. to on. The- before, before you, chapter, you before you you It's
11: breaking in and out.
0: Yeah. yeah. Can, can you, you hear me? I'm, 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 Let me turn, turn it down. down. Can, you
10: Can you hear me? me? Hear me? Can you, oh, hear, you guys hear me? Hear me. Mm-hmm. I'm trying, trying to get you No, 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 Commissioner, I'm right. Still, Still an i I'm 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 uh, I'm i fast fast um I heard, I you, heard say, you say black the ICD after all the the West. Um and, and I I got off the it uh, uh, yeah, yeah,
0: so 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 I'm I'm
10: sorry I am sorry. You are there to There's something happening.
12: And then no no step
10: step point point everyone else log out, log back. I'm logged out. Okay, I'm trying to
0: I think if, if everyone, everyone else do you it will, it will be, be okay. okay. Yes, 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 everyone. everyone can you hear me now? Does it make any sense? Is
10: it better? Okay. So, yeah, so, you know, I always get this, I always, I'm always concerned when people say they're in community, right? And I always wonder if they're hitting the targeted populations in community, right? So I heard you say HCN and another organization that I never heard of, right? Um, but I didn't hear, really hear you say that you are going after African-American led organizations that actually work with Black folks in Black communities. So that, that's always become, I remember Mosaic came used to work with Ellie Hill about 10 years ago. And they kind of fell off the face of the earth. I ain't ain't heard nothing about uh, um, um, the Mosaic Project in a a long while now. And I'm just wondering, like, because I I had an incident a while back and I reached out to DPH and I think the Mosaic Project was on the conversation because I had a 10-year-old little kid whose mom was having issues with him and actually dropped him off at juvenile. Juvenile wouldn't take him. So we just didn't know what to do. With that young young man. Nobody wanted to accept him. Nobody wanted to work with him. And it was just saying, it seemed like you guys have all these resources, but how do you, how do community access these resources if you're not in community and people are not out? Because outreach is not emails. And that's, you know, that's for me. Outreach is not emails. Outreach is not saying that I'm emailing or, I'm, you know, I sent something to the organization. Outreach is actually going in community and actually working and talking to the community. So um, I'm just wondering, how are you guys doing outreach?
7: I, I can clarify for the system and the programs I mentioned since, since you brought those up and then I'll pass it to Janet to speak to FMP. The, the two organizations I brought up, HCN is African-American led
10: and, and, the, and the MOT, yeah,
7: and the, the MOT program within HCN is 100% African-American led and they're 100% prior to COVID and they're, we're getting back With when the schools reopen and primary care clinics are back up and prior to COVID, they were in the community in primary care sites in school sites at community events. Responding to trauma that happened into the community and and really working with other community based organizations and and it's the same model with Columbia, which is 100% uh, African American staff at Southeast child family therapy center, which is 1 of our outpatient civil service clinics that right now the the leader of that clinic has retired and the interim director is an African-American male. Um, and I'll let Janet speak to, to the other questions, I think.
8: Actually, I was gonna let-, Actually, uh, I was gonna let uh,
11: Calvin. Hello? Calvin. Calvin. Hey, how's everybody doing? Uh, my name is Calvin Thomas, and I'm a supervisor at Family Mosaic and I had the pleasure to serve under Dr. Abner Bowles as I'm uh, the longest standing Family Mosaic employee. And I say that with a smile. Um, in regards to outreach uh, in the Bayview, uh, Hunters Point community, as well as in the Western Addition and throughout the Sunnydale region and uh, Double Rock region of city, um, I personally have an outreach team that we actually go out. We are connected with Bee Magic. We're connected with Mo Magic. Uh, we're connected with APRI, which is uh, the A. Philoff Randolph Institute, which is right downstairs from Family Mosaic, and we've connected various youth um, with this particular program in regards to construction work, in regards to uh, getting off probation, and doing various things in regards to mentoring and tutoring with these various groups. Uh, when Mo Magic and B Magic have backpack um, disbursement, we are out there with them with a Family Mosaic table, passing out cars and different flyers. Um, My particular um, outreach is in the schools. I like to, when schools start to make myself known to the mental health uh, practitioners at the school to try to find out when they're going to have um, either a uh, mental health day or some type of collaboration where we can go up there as a team and speak with them. Um, Because a lot of times we have youth that uh, spend a lot of out of class times. And like the gentleman said, it, it speaks to the mental health issues that are going on. So sometimes these youth come to school acting out, but it didn't really start in the school It's something that happened at home that's now transferred over to the school and and the behaviors start acting out. So I like to work directly with the school and mental health staffs. Uh, I've done that at Balboa, uh, Lincoln High, um, uh, uh, Ida B. Wells. Uh, I can't think of the name of the school, it used to be Wilson. I'm so stuck on calling it Wilson. It's a, what is that now? Uh, uh, I can't think
10: of but it used to be Wilson high school yeah No, no no I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, so, I mean, in I mean, so yes. so, so, well, no, magic is magic, magic, magic and and magic and actually the one to put together that resource fair and everything that goes on with that backpack giveaway. That is that is what I do. So I am at Ellie Hill House Community Center, been there for the last 22 years. Um. So I am, I am,
11: yeah.
10: I, I do, you, Depp, Depp. I, am, probably, I am, I am, I am, J. you probably J. have J. met me, you probably yeah, have yeah, met yeah, me over the years yeah, because yeah, I, am. So I used so to come to Ellie Hill I,
11: I, I, am the I, I am the one, one. The one I that, yeah, okay.
10: So. Yeah, so, yeah we, so I used to I used
11: to go to Ellie Hill Hutch as a youth, uh lefty. I actually worked with Howard Smith uh oh, over right. at Ellie Hill Hutch and we did quite a bit of work with uh Ellie Hill Hutch with the after school program with the youth we had in that's the why, Western I, that's the right. district. That's why I that's why.
10: We have we haven't, so we haven't seen you guys in you long there Been 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 I been 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 10 years. Long, long, long. 10 years. 10 years. So and been been I have been 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 was been 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 so I haven't been so been 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 like I been 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 I haven't seen any never actually been, been. A, a community hub, a community resource center. We actually been our own kind of emergency operations center for the whole, when I say community, the whole San Francisco, Sunnydale, Hunter's Point, and all that. So we L Hill doors never closed because I knew community was gonna get left behind in that process. And I brought this up because Mose. I haven't seen you all down in the, in the in Western edition or in the Bayview much in the last with YCD or in any of them programs in the last thing I was just wondering who, how is the outreach actually going out right now? Um, and, and that was just like what I was saying. I mean, when you talk about backpack giveaway and all that, I, I created that with um Ms. Mr. Cheryl Davis and all of them. So I, I I put that I'm the one to get up at four in the morning and put all that together for that backpack giveaway. And it's August 2nd. It's August 2nd this year. So we'll be doing it August 2nd. So it'll be happening the first Saturday of next month too. So but um I was just saying with all these resources and the resources and mental health is so serious and it's such an issue right now as we come into this recovery stage, right? I'm actually have 90 kids in the program right now. So um, as we come into this recovery stage, we cannot seem to find, in every organization and every call, I'm on the mega black calls as well, and every organization having the same issue is like we cannot find enough African American mental health people to come in and support our youth in this process, right? And so that becomes a concern when you guys say you have all these resources, right, and nobody has access to them. So nobody, so I can say for myself because I'm every day in the community. I'm I'm not one of them people that run around and talk about what community is. I am in my community every day. And when I say my community, that's either in the Fillmore, that's either in Hunters Point, that's either over there with Drew and Sunnydale. I'm somewhere every day. So when I say Mosaic with all these resources and everybody's fighting, trying to find mental health, we, it's just hard. It's been, it's, been, it's been a challenge, right? And you guys just made it seem like like you had this big old, um, all these resources and, and, and nobody has access to them. Nobody, nobody in the community knows about them. And that's all I can tell you. I can just say what community, and I don't always speak for a community because my community has a voice. All you have to do is talk to them sometimes. So for me, it's just always about people always say they come in community, but do you actually really come into the community and work with folks? So I'm not saying, you know, it's not. It's like, we, we need resources, we need mental health. So it's not about, you know, like I always say, it's not about sending somebody an email. It's about coming into our community and talking to the people in the community that need the support. And I understand about the grandmothers and all that. We are, I'm part of the Dream Keeper Initiative right now with the mayor's opportunity in DCYF. So at the end of the day, you guys, it's like, let's, let's stop with this saying that we doing all this stuff in community when community don't even know who I, I just called for people and say, hey, have y'all heard the Mosaic program? I ain't seen them in a long time, huh? So you know, it's just like I mean, I used to, my grandkids knew them, but now I just haven't seen them in a while. So you know, that's just be my concern, man. When I it just, comes
11: to I like, just especially to, especially with mental health. <laughs> yeah, I I I I agree with you one hundred percent, Mister James. Um, so we have um, probably distance, and and it's not intentional. have a distance with the uh. The Western Edition area, but what's great about this conversation is now you have a contact person, and now I have a contact person um, to work with, so we can, you know, uh, t- basically close that gap and, and get out there and do what we need to do. Like, you know, I have I have Kim Mitchell uh, who works over yeah, there in the Sunnydale yeah, yeah. area. You know, I I have uh, you know various other contacts in in, in the Lakeview and Ocean area. Like I said, I'm I'm an inner city youth um, that made good, and 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 you know, for me it was to learn to to teach and to share. And that's what I you know continue to do. So I appreciate uh your concerns. Uh you now have a contact person and I'd like to move forward with some of those. I'll Thank you, sir. Yeah, I'm, yeah a I'm a week. I just want to. second um Um I just want to
7: second that uh, by no means uh talking about the strategies that we have for um, by African American-led organizations for youth is is in no way saying that we have enough. We absolutely do not have enough to meet the needs. And so I just want to make that clear. And speaking to those strategies, I, I did not want to unintentionally make the impact that it, it sounded like we have enough. And we absolutely have families that it, we have a very complicated system that's very hard to navigate and very hard to understand. And we have very real capacity issues. We've got. Significant vacancies, we've got very slow hiring with HR in the 3 outpatient clinics alone. If I had all my vacancies filled right now, we could serve 220 new families today with those new positions. And so, and FMP. Major vacancies, uh, we we are the capacity is is um, the capacity, both in civil service as well as in the community based organization. The vacancy rates are high. Um, the access issues are real and the the difficulty in understanding how to navigate mental health systems and and the various options indoors doors is is an it keeps honestly keeps me up
0: at night so i 100% agree with you and all that
1: thank you are there other questions or comments uh if commissioner maldonado go ahead
13: Hi, 1st of all, thanks for being here for the presentation. We really appreciate it. 1 of the questions I have is with regard to funding and I think, um. Some of the issues might have been just mentioned, Uh, um, Janet in her introduction uh, mentioned that there was a vast increase in funding that was recently received, I think to over 3,200. Almost doubled correct from like 1600. so what upgrades or service changes have you been able to implement? Have you been able to hire more staff? I know you said that there's kind of a stall with regard to hiring staff. Um, but if that is the intention, then you know what, is it more mental health workers? Is it more psychiatrists? I know FLEX funding was mentioned, but that was kind of general. So I just kind of wanna know, it seems like a vast increase in funding, what that money's gonna be put to use for.
8: Sure, so um, let me start by saying that that capitation rate of 1800 was from the start and there have been request after request to the state to um to increase our rate to make us equal and whole like other rep programs around the state so we were for a very long time we functioned on a very small amount for each client the money is primarily used for services so it's not directly used to hiring staff um so there's some that is used for the staff, but primarily it's to service a client to cover their mental health services. Um, there psychiatric hospitalizations when they're enrolled in our health plan. Um, so the majority of that goes to to cover all of that. Um, it's not so when I was talking about all the services that we can offer, it's not just mental health and I don't say just, but we have. Um, tutoring, we can offer OTTP. so there are a lot of contracts that also, um use that capitation funding um to help support our kids so it's spread around the program can i I follow up on that
13: what what kind of services specifically and what are the average services that each um youth uh necessitates can you be more specific with regard to that like Mm -hmm. do some just require mental health uh, Do the majority just require mental health services do they require tutoring do they require other services More specificity would be helpful. Thank you. Yeah,
8: sure. Um, So we are a mental health program. So that is something that we look at primarily. But I think the best part about FMP, which is the part that I love the most, is that we can also be creative. So while we are supporting the mental health piece, we're also looking at what the child may or may need instead of just thinking, just thinking outside the box, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right, so there are some kids who really do well in therapy. There are other kids who are maybe not ready for therapy. Um, Maybe they get more out of uh, going to a boxing um, class or an art class or a dance class. You know, they get something out of there, making a connection with someone outside of the therapy world. So we are a mental health clinic, I mean, agency for sure, but we do really look at the whole picture. Um, We look at things for the family. What can the family do together? So there's a lot more that we do that's not just mental health related. I mean, it's all mental health, but we're trying to think outside the box because we do have a lot of flex funding and we can be creative. Um, I think one of the barriers for us is not so much, um, well, sometimes I think the families may not be completely ready to receive all this stuff yet, right? So we try to pace ourselves um, and put different services slowly um, to help the family. I don't know if that makes sense,
13: but it really just... uh I actually have a follow-up question to that too. I know that in your three-part, the three-part steps that you mentioned, familial engagement was kind of a major part of it, but I'm wondering how often parents or guardians, grandparents, family members um, do engage. And it's not necessarily because of willingness, but because people have multiple jobs sometimes or other commitments. I'm just wondering how often they are able to engage um, in these programs and um, whether in your experience that makes a, a, a significant difference in, in being able to um, to help the youth.
8: Yeah, um, so I'll start with our approach really is looking at the family, like we're not a crisis service but we're sort of a crisis service. When they come to us, they're at risk of something, something a higher level of care, hospitalization, those types of things. So we need to think of, um, Sort of crisis stabilization services so we are intense in that we would like to if the family allows us to meet with them as much as three times a week um primarily in the beginning there's a lot of contact a lot of um, either face-to-face phone coordination that goes into so you'll see a lot of the billable services they call them right in the beginning right because you're really trying to establish um, a rapport with the families you're trying to get to know Where they live the school situation, um, you know, you're really trying to get the whole picture of the family before putting stuff in. Right? You're trying to understand what the family's going through and then put services in that they will actually. Um, that they want, right? It's not our plan. It's their plan. So, as much contact as a family allows us, and yes, there are families who. Um, are harder to engage. They're not ready for the service. Um, there are other circumstances that that may be going through. They may be going through an eviction, right? So mental health is not going to be the number 1 priority on their list. Right? They're, they need a house. They need to live somewhere 1st, before we come in and offer therapy. So we need to look at that 1st. Um, so sorry to interrupt you, but that's 1 of my questions. How
13: successful are those um, engagement attempts? With the family, um, I realize it's, it's a major part of, of the three step process, but I'm just wondering how successful those attempts are. And like I said, for a variety of reasons, not just willingness, yep. but, you know, other obligations that parents or guardians may have.
8: Yeah, um, I guess the more concrete answer. So in the last, we were just looking at this the other day, as far as referrals and how, um, if they're open, if they're connecting. So, for example, in one month, we had 17 referrals and out of the 17 referrals we had 15 that engaged and open. Now that's a good month, right? Another month we may have 10 referrals and maybe five only engage. It's really a fluid number. It's I'd have to really go back like a year's worth and look at those numbers to give you an average, but it can ebb and flow. Your strategy um, in addressing the needs of the youth
13: change um, in, in relation to whether the family can engage or not. Say that again, I can't hear the first part. So how does your strategy in addressing, you know, um, the mental health problems or other issues that that a minor may have, how does it change depending on um, the family's ability to engage or
8: not? Yeah, Um, this question comes up, you know, for our care coordinators a lot. Uh, I think for us is we we go in with the intention of helping the whole family. And sometimes um, the parent, legal guardian, the adults in the family aren't ready but maybe the youth is ready and they can benefit from some of the services that we can offer we'll still stay in there and work with the youth um, and still try to engage a family as much as we can and you know and sometimes in those circumstances we're working with the youth to maybe find something recreational somewhere to go to a safe place Um, and so it may not be working directly with the family maybe they're not engaged so every every family that we get is very different so we really try to look at what we can do to the extreme right we're really going to be creative Um, so in that it's a little hard to answer but that's what we try to do we look at the whole family first and then whoever we have left who wants our services we will work with and sometimes you know
7: Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Can I just add to that, too, in terms of a broader strategy? I mean, this is such a big question. It's such a big and it's such a complex question. That is something we think about for our entire system. And looking at the race equity lens, I mentioned that we have a workforce demographic report where we look at the race and linguistic capacity of our staff in comparison to the clients we serve. Part of what we're doing is our director of practice improvement and analytics. A lot of that work is so clinics can also look at the racial and linguistic um, makeup of their providers in comparison to the family they serve, because that's one point of engagement, right? There's a lot of factors that go into engagement: destigmatizing mental health, meeting people where they're at, all you know, making sure you're understanding their needs, not being top down, really being informed by what their needs are. There's there's a lot of factors that go into engagement, and one of them is. The race and linguistic, you know, who your provider is and if you feel comfortable going to them. And a lot of the times, cultural match or racial match is really important in that initial engagement phase. It doesn't always necessarily mean it's going to be effective treatment outcomes based on the literature and based on experience, but it's very important for that initial engagement phase. And if we have less African American, less Latinx, Less less API um, staff, which we do have, you know, in comparison to the clients that we serve. If that's the case, we're thinking about a how do we a work with HR to recruit and diversify our workforce so families have options in who they work with, but also how are we working with our workforce around if you are not a cultural match we've been doing a lot of race equity trainings to really examine our our areas of privilege and how we have conversations and supervision around that. And providers need to be having those conversations with families too, or recognizing how their race and their cultural backgrounds or how they are coming to the relationship might impact engagement. So it, it's it's a very big, very complex, multi, multifaceted from the race of the provider, the comfort, the, the mistrust of mental health systems, the, you know, The willingness to engage the types of needs that you have, there's a lot of factors that go into that engagement process. Um, and there's a lot of things we're doing at the system level with our practice improvement work to to address some of those issues.
0: Thank you.
3: Commissioner shorter. See your hand raised.
2: Thank you. I'll be very brief because I I really do appreciate this presentation
14: from Family Mosaic Project, um, and the the um, the back and forth with our with our our commission. And I know that we have to move forward on the agenda because we're um, a little bit behind time. So um, I just wanted to just kind of go back really quickly, not looking for any particular response or engagement um but just um you know his his historically meeting um you know back in to the in the 90s um when i was um was directing the detention diversion advocacy project um you know the family mosaic project was was clearly a, a an important resource um uh, to some of the, the youth and families that we're working with that we were able to divert from detention. Um, but I wanted to kind of go back a bit to what James was talking about in terms of sort of there seemed to be something of a disconnect um, between the resources of the of, of Family Mosaic Project and perhaps what's happening in um, where he has sat at Ella Hill Hutch um, and other parts of the Western addition. As I recall, part of, I think part of the trend, and maybe that this is changing, um, and how um, it relates to our population in the juvenile um, justice um, arena uh, is this. There were um, services that were provided, for instance, that in the Southeast sector of the city. Um, on the west side, or in the western edition, there was the west side community mental health. In um, the OMI or the Ingleside area, there were services there. And as I recall, and then certainly there were mental health services and in the mission through Horizons and other places. And also, you could connect to services, they weren't provided by Petrail Hill Neighborhood Services, but you could connect to services. Additionally, there were mental health services um, that were provided by individual therapists that the court would, you know, um, um render necessary for the family or for the, the family and youth. To, to. So there are an array of, of ways in which people could connect um, to mental health services and support. Um, So I don't think it was the case that Family Mosaic Project is just unknown or was not of interest in reaching out to particularly our population of youth that are juvenile justice involved. I think it was really kind of set up in a way so that because a great deal of the movement was to have as much as possible community-based services that were localized, where you know, within your 10-block radius or within your your neighborhood and your community, that would serve those youth. Plus, in some cases, it was not necessarily practical, feasible, or certainly safe for youth to be traveling from one part of the city to the other um, if there was something uh, pertaining to their particular case or the um, offense that they were uh, under review for. Um, so I just really wanted to, I don't know if that makes sense, but just really wanted to highlight that my presumption is, is that to, to some extent that it's probably, um, if not the same, a, a, a similar um, set up in terms of how our Juvenile Justice Center um, is referring um, youth and their families to these various mental health services. Um, so perhaps at a, at a at a later date, maybe it's already happened. Forgive me if it if it's happened. I'm a newer commissioner. Uh, sort of maybe just a an overview of the different mental health um, programs that are there uh, to serve or that we are connected to from um, at, through the juvenile justice. Um, center. So, I just want to say thank you so much to what you all are doing at Family Mosaic. I certainly, um, you know, am another uh, nostalgia here in in terms of having worked with Dr. Dr. Bowles and the staff at that time. Um, and I'm just very glad to see that Family Mosaic is is um, is, is is still with us uh, and thriving and evolving. And thank you
0: for what you do for. Our youth and families. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Are there any other questions or comments for Family Mosaic before we head on to the next agenda item?
2: We have public testimony, and then I have a, another comment.
3: Sure. Uh, go ahead, Commissioner.
5: I just want to echo what um, Commissioner James and also Andrechera said. You know, my concern is the outreach to the neighborhood. And I was wondering, will you all be willing to come back again just to update us how far you have done in terms of outreach to the community?
0: Without asking for too much from them?
2: Yes,
8: we would love to.
0: Okay. Like tomorrow?
5: Okay, that'd be fine. So we'll let you. Okay, thank you very much. We appreciate all you're doing.
9: Um, I would just like to follow up on that because I really appreciate that comment because there's no point in having this on the agenda unless we're identifying an issue and trying to come to, uh, you know, some solution. and it has to go beyond Calvin and James knowing each other and being able to make referrals because this is a systemic issue and. Uh, this program was set up specifically for juvenile probation type kids for kids in the system for kids who would other have, uh, you know otherwise have to be in placement for kids at the very highest risk and it is very frustrating to me to hear that you don't really track it you're not sure how many um, we we I just got an email from somebody who's very involved in the juvenile justice network who said you know that they tried so hard to Get a young person in your program. They were on the waiting list for a very long time. So, you know, we got to come up with a way so that you can target specifically kids in the juvenile probation system and I appreciate what. Uh, commissioner Moses said, but I also would like to turn to our department. Um, we have Emily Fox on the line whose job it is to facilitate these kinds of relationships. We have our chief. I I think it would be very useful to to her chief who made a, 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 a comment at the last meeting she attended about how important collaboration is and how these are systemic issues and how we have to figure out how to solve them. So, you know, wonderful that James and Calvin are, you know, are going to be able to make referrals, but um, I would like to, you know, whether it's in 2 months or whether it's a report back from the, um. Uh, the department, or whether we follow up with the program committee to really figure out how we can have the very highest priority kids who are in danger of being incarcerated incarcerated and spending a lifetime, you know, behind bars, the kind of mental health services that that they need. So, um, yeah.
11: I, I agree, with, I agree with your comment and I, I know this is going to go further than just James and myself. Um, Toye Biden, I recognize me now. Uh, no hair, but the beard. <laughs> so I kind of did a reverse. But, no but I, I, I would love to be the contact person for Family Mosaic in regards to the outreach. And uh, like Mr. Moses said, you know, can you start tomorrow? We, we We can start tonight. Just if you, if you have a contact person for me, please let me know. I can organize a team within family mosaic of the people that I supervise who would love to serve the community. Like I said, I, I mean, I have no other joy, but serving children, youth and families. You know, I, I can't say it was my calling, but it was something I ran into and I embraced. Um, and so I, 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 you know, I, I grew up over in, in the Western edition, you know, uh, staying in Banneker. So I, I knew uh, Robert Hector and all the, the guys that got me right. So I wanted to be 1 of those people that got youth right. And James, I, I really appreciate your energy. Um, and I can hear when you're speaking it, um, this is something that we need to to get right. Um, you know, when when I 1st started family mosaic under Dr Bowles, we had 2 probation officers that were on site. So the referrals were a little bit different. They were right there um, within the program with uh, DHS was right there within family mosaic. We had people from the school district right there. So we're not reinventing the wheel. We're just trying to find a way to get it rolling again without so many bumps. And, you know, like I said, I, I want to be part of the process. I just don't want to speak it. I want to get out there and do it. So, so I just I'm
9: sorry. It's, it's not, not all, all, of, all I'm going. My point is that it's not all on Family Mosaic; it's on the department, the Juvenile Probation Department, and it's on other CBOs. You know, I go regularly to the Juvenile Justice Providers Association. I've never heard anybody mention Family Mosaic. You know, and there are like thirty juvenile justice providers in that association. So this is a, a joint effort, um, and I would like to turn in some ways to Emily Fox whose job it is
15: out so thank you I'm I'm gonna if I may jump in here and say this is this is more of a system collaboration this is different than what I would say is Emily's job which is really community org to community org Um, and I really appreciate what Janet's saying about the numbers declining Margaret to your question about what happens next During this meeting, I've already reached out to my staff about making sure that we're on this and having this conversation. So it's not going unnoticed. (laughs) Of course, we have the mechanisms in place to follow up on these kinds of gaps when they become obvious to us. And I appreciate the presentation tonight a lot. And I also want to acknowledge that there are reasons that there are fewer kids referred. We don't have as many kids as we had in 2012. We certainly don't have as many kids that we're looking at placement for as we did during that time. And that's a really good problem. So the natural decline, we should celebrate and then any gaps that remain, we need to tackle. Um, and, uh, Calvin, I'm going to hook you up with our director of probation services directly so that he can come out and talk to you. And we are, um, I've already been contacting him during this meeting and we will go forward. Thanks. Very,
0: very Good. Thanks. Thanks. Are there any other up and get an echo so is there any other questions or comments This is Go ahead. I'm sorry, President.
14: This is Andre shorter again i again, I don't want to belabor the point, and I think that all all points have been made, but i I just really want to um kind of boost what what commissioner Brockins is is bringing. Um, I do think it's really critical that um, the, the the commission uh, through the department. I don't know if there has been an overview. So there's the systemic issues in terms of of um, what's out there and how our kids are plugged into the services. But it sounds to me that we need sort of just an overview, just sort of an inventory. Um, so to speak of what is available in the community and who are we connected to and, um. You know, um, so beyond family mosaic project, I don't know if we're connected to the other um, programs that I described. I don't know the status of of those, 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 those programs, for instance, like Westside community, mental health, um, which I think is Westside counselors. Now, I don't, uh, I think they uh, have a different title or what's happening in, in, um. Other um, parts of the city, uh, not trying to, you know, again, just sort of repurpose um, programs that may or may not exist in the way that they did, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But it sounds as though this um, commission could have a good overview of what services are, different types of services, and how our kids are, are plugged in, and not necessarily. Uh, yeah, where, where our, um, kids are likely to be plugged in. So, I'm just, I knew we got to move the agenda I'm offer that. Um, but I just really wanted to echo. That point, let's have an overview of what's available. Let's have some inventory and uh, kind of map out. Um, you know, take sort of an audit of of where we are, um, what services are available and and, um. I think have a better idea of what's
1: happening. I appreciate that, Commissioner. I think that's um, a really good point. Um, I think that we had, uh, Madam Secretary, if you're on the line. Um, I know our secretary had to just step away for a second, but we had a presentation from DPH. Uh, I can't recall when it was, where I think we kind of went over a lot of those, um, and I think uh, I think Farnaz presented that. Um, maybe six months ago or, or a year ago, so maybe we can Yeah. Go, go, go ahead and maybe you can touch on that. Yes,
7: I've, I've presented here and I've presented, um, and part of that was the Children's Family System of Care and the right. landscape of services. Um, part of it was a request to hear about Mental Health SF. So the um, Interim Director at the time, um, Marlo Simmons, had come to speak to some of those services that are being built out related to Mental Health SF. I've also Talked to the closed juvenile hall, uh, hall work group commissions. We've presented there. We've been extensively involved with the closed juvenile hall work group committees' um, inventory of all of our programs, um, so they have all of that information. So we've done a, we've done a lot of presenting, and we're happy to do more.
14: Terrific. Thank you. Thank you. And forgive me, I'm a new newer commission, so this happened um, um, in the Andrea BC um, area. <laughs> so I. Look forward to perhaps being able to review that, um, as an individual commissioner, but it sounds like it was, um. Very informative.
0: No, can I
15: commission card um, and I just want to also note that our deep dive in September will actually be an analysis of referrals from juvenile probation to some of the programs, right? The programs that probation has been actively referring to. So I think that'll be a good complement to the materials that DPH provided in the past that will uh, go your way, Commissioner.
10: And can I add Commissioner Shorter, yes. Um, Westside, Westside Mental Health has been definitely very active in the community through um, through Black to the Future and a um, mental health support and family support as well. Um, Patrillo Hill has been very active through sharing and them up there. Um, yeah, the few quite a few of the organizations that you named has been very active in community when it comes to the mental health piece, right? But with all that being said, we still fall so short when it comes to like the support and what the young people need and the family support and the mental health support and just all that stuff. I know we're on a on a on a time frame, but yes, they have been and they still are. And you know, with Dr. Jones and them up there now, it's just been great. And you know, but we still fall so short. To the needs of the communities.
11: If, if if I can, can I please give uh, the committee, the distinguished committee, uh, my uh, phone number and my cell number, uh, so people can get Okay. My uh, my office number is four one five two zero six seven six three three, and my cell phone number is four one five
1: three one zero
0: zero
1: four two eight. Thank you. Thank you. Uh I wanna thank uh there, just before we move on to public comments just wanna thank our uh presenters Janet as well as Farnaz and uh everyone from family and, and Calvin as well for everyone from Family Mosaic for um, coming here, I know that this issue uh has been probably top of mind for this commission uh for the last several years. Uh I know that uh Commissioner Montejano, when he was still as part of this commission, was uh partnering with Commissioner Brodkin on uh finding new ways to address the situation. And so um it's gonna be ongoing, but uh I just echo my fellow commissioners in uh expressing our commitment in any way we can to Using this body to address um, the issues and concerns that we can have in, uh, that we have in the city and that need to um, be addressed and whether that's uh, finding more resources or everything, anything that we can to uh, improve the situation. Um, we know that this is 1 of the more challenging ones, but um, you know we're committed and resolved to doing more. So, thank you. At this time, we'll open up for public comment on. This item. This is public comment for item number four, the presentation by Family Mosaic Project. And I believe, is it Araceli um, that's going to handle public comment?
4: Yes, and we do have one caller at this
0: time. Thank you. I'll put them through. Hello, everyone. My name
16: is Dinky Enti. I'm with the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice and also the Juvenile Justice Providers Association. Um, Farah, Calvin, um, uh, Janet, I just want to thank you for this presentation about FMP. Um, Farah, I know you mentioned um, that you all have a substantial um, uh, vacancies uh, issue and um, that's preventing you all from being able to serve and support more youth and families. Um, I'm not certain if that included FMP specifically as well, Um, but I I wonder about that, right? Um, I'm wondering if FMP is experiencing capacity challenges, whether it's due to limited funding or challenges in hiring, retention, fill in vacancies, um, what have you. Um, Because FMP can really support our juvenile justice youth with the specialized and individual strategies that some of their staff utilize. Um, in, a, in a very successful way. And I bring this up because in the past, um, on occasion, um, we faced unfortunate and, and pretty you know, substantial delays when referring youth to FMP. Um, this was in no way our experience every time, um, but something we experienced more than once. Um, there was one specific situation where I remember um, a, a, young, a young person languished in the opening stage for numerous months. Um, and it took you know quite a quite a bit of substantial interventions for the youth to finally be able to access services months later. Um, and it was it was a shame that one of our youth um, in, in pretty urgent need, was in that position. Um, and once they were able to connect, once the open was completed, so to speak, um, everything went off swimmingly, right? Um, so I wonder if FMP is challenged um, with regards to capacity. And if so, I, I really hope that JPD or, or some, some part of the city can support FMP to address those capacity issues um, so that our juvenile justice kids aren't left in that waiting game. Um That, you know, unfortunately, they so often are at the bottom of that list and, and we need to address that inequity. Um, so thank you so much. Really appreciate your consideration.
0: Okay, we have another caller. Thank
3: you.
12: Hi, this is Molly Brown. I want to thank you so much for your presentation. And Farah, you've been so patient and um, generous with your time coming back time and time again to help explain the complexity of the mental health system of San Francisco. So, I just wanted to give you a shout out for that. Um, I wanted to just comment on the fact that if there's 210 clients, you know, looking at 5% or, or have some sort of JPD involvement and in, I would love to see us contemplating fast tracking JPD referrals because these youth are really in a very different place. I, it obviously, it seems like all of your referrals are multi system involved and have their own hierarchy of needs. But I do agree that JPD youth seem to fall at the bottom of the heap. And so I would love to encourage the commission to think about how to advocate on in different systems we're also talking about this with the Department of Homelessness like how do we fast track JPD youth in all these different forums to ensure their needs get met as expeditiously as possible so I am I also think in terms of like youth at you know who are at risk of placement when we're already at a place where these youth are going to be placed or most likely um, in search of placement which doesn't really exist anything that might enable them to get back home or into their community would would be preferential than the alternative so thanks so much and i understand the hr issue it's it's city wide um, but at the same time, I think within um, the JGPA, um, if there are certain people you're looking to hire, we can put that out to our networks. So I, I think we could probably work in partnership on that issue as well. Thank you.
0: Okay, that was our last speaker. Thank
3: you. And uh, Madam secretary, do I have any voicemails
1: or emails?
2: No, you're all clear.
1: Well, once again, thank you so much uh, to everyone from Family Mosaic Project for uh, coming tonight and uh, presenting to us uh, to be continued. And uh, we hope to hear more in the future. And we will do more on our part and our end to, um, as I said, to
3: use the resources
1: of this commission to assist in the issue. Thank you so much.
8: Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, thank you, everyone. That,
1: th- thank you very much. Uh, we'll now take item number five, uh, the chief's report. Chief Miller, I'll hand it over to you.
15: Sure. Um, I need sharing ability.
0: Actually, I don't think I have yet. Araceli, do you think you could pass the ball to the chief? to Katie Miller, actually, it doesn't say T, but.
6: Yeah, I still don't, I still don't see that I have it.
0: I'm gonna send her a message in the chat.
6: Okay. I know
15: we're running behind. I'll be quick, I only have 43 slides. Just seeing who's listening, just (laughs)
10: checking. Only 43, Chief? Only Only 43,
15: 43. and then we have our deep dive, (laughs)
10: so
15: dig in, get some food. Still waiting to share the slides.
6: I'm only going to go over uh, seven of them, actually.
15: You are welcome.
10: And I thought I heard him say earlier that the ball was removed or something, it's not the ball no more?
15: No, the ball's been replaced apparently by like a little, Square, which it's, it's yeah. next to your name, um, Katie. I'll give
4: oh, sorry, I gave it to Catherine and by accident, I'll hey, give it, it to I you. Know. It looks like an envelope now.
15: <laughs> Commissioner to <Chud>, so, Okay, <laughs> I will
6: pass it I over. To you. It. Give me a moment, please. So, I can make sure I'm bringing up the right thing. Um, let's see.
15: Can you see the slide? I see a thumbs up from Commissioner Chu. We're good. Great, I'm going to start the show. Hold on. Do to do from beginning. OK, so as with usual, you have the um, entire set of slides at your disposal. I'm going to just highlight some that were of particular interest for us in the department. Happy to take questions. Um, But also, I'm eager to then get us to our deep dive tonight, which is going over uh, the data that's in our annual report or the data that we pulled out that we think is of particular. uh, Interest for all of you, so I'm going to get going. I'm going to take us to slide 3, which is our demographics from Monday when we had 18 young people, Um, I would say 18 young people in the hall. It's actually a little more complicated than that. It's actually. With 17 young people in the hall and 1, young person in detention with us, but actually at San Francisco general, I bring that up because it's an important reminder to me that when we have kids at general, we have two staff there at all times 24 hours a day with that young person. So I just want to note that. Um, But they're technically detained, so they're included in this 18. You can see that we had 16 boys 2 girls. You can see that ethnic and racial breakdown. 56% of our young people were black. 11% AAPI, and 33% Latinx, and then you can see the ages, um, and you'll see that uh, 16% were under 17, 50% were 17, and then everybody else was older than that. Um, And then uh, you can see the categories of who was in the hall. So um, we had youth pending adjudication, pending disposition, pending placement, commitment and then the kids coming in who were uh, not at a home placement kids, which is pretty high actually. Um, and then I already noted that there was one youth at, the, at general and then one of these young people is actually here and you see it reflected down this last chart on the right as a commitment. So a young person who the court committed to the hall for a number of months, this is a different than a young person we've talked about in the last few months. So this is a second commitment to the hall by the court uh, projected to be here for I think about eight and a half months. Moving on, I'm going to take us to slide six. Slide six is our admissions, releases, and average daily population. I bring us to this slide just to note that that uh, there were 24 admissions, 19 releases in June, and the average daily population in June was 16 young people. That is the highest average daily pop since March of 2020. So, it's the 1st time since the pandemic really began that we've seen our average daily population number hit back up to where it was last March. I'm going to take us now to slide 13. Our length of stay range, I know this can be a hard slide for people to follow, but I'm just going to hit the highlight on it, um, which is that we're seeing our average length, not only our average daily population, but we're seeing our average length of stay um, increase for the kids who are in on the last day of the month. So the kids who are with us, we're seeing with us longer right now. Part of it is for because of the example I just gave you, right? If we have a judge commit a young person for many months, obviously they're gonna be here for a while. We have some very complicated cases right now. Um, and we have several young people in the hall who came in on homicide charges right now. Those are obviously gonna take a long time to resolve. Those are just some examples, but wanna draw your attention. 70 of the young people who were with us on the last day of the month, 77% had been detained for more than 30 days. So I just wanted to highlight that for you, something that we're aware of and watching. Gonna take us to slide 18 now, which is admission by primary detention reason. So in May, there were um, only nine admissions to juvenile hall, which is great. Um, Eight of those were mandatory uh, detentions under the law. Um, Seven of them were for mandatory new law violations, so those 707 b offenses, and one was a transfer from county jail or DJJ, right? So those are mandatory transfers in. The one case where a young person came in on the detention that wasn't mandatory was due to their score on our detention risk instrument. They scored over 11 or it's equal equal to or more than 11, um, and it was a case where the young person, there was a gun involved in the case. Um, And then I'm going to take us now to slide 22, um, which is probation Carc, can make it right referrals for the month. So, as you can see in May, there were 26 referrals to probation, relatively low number. Like, I just said, 9 of them went into the hall of those 26 referrals, 18 were for felonies, 5 were for misdemeanors and 3 were for warrants or probation violations. And you can see the breakdown, of course, also on which cases went to CARC and make it right at the DA's office, nine cases to CARC, three to make it right. This is actually the lowest number of probation referrals since before the start of 2020 um, in a given month. And, uh, and so actually means that make it right and CARC were relatively high compared to the overall number that month, even though in general number going on an objective number, they're not necessarily high, but I wanted to note those. I'll take us to slide 26, which is our active caseloads by unit. And I wanna note that our active caseload continues to decline. We're still seeing that impact of these reduced cases coming in. But I wanna note that most of the decline you see here um, is the light blue at the bottom, which is CARC. Um, We've been aggressively going through the cases that were open in the system, assigned to CARC, and closing out any case that was um, inactive for us as probation. Case could still be active for CARC, With the um, CART staff could still be supporting that young person, but we're not actively involved. So you see a dramatic drop from 44 to 12 as we've been aggressively going through those cases and making sure we're not holding open in our system. Any case that we're not actively involved in. And then I wanted to take us to slide 33. Which is out of home placement details, and I wanted to do that because I wanted to note that in June, we only had 3 young people placed in group homes and STRTPs, and 11 placed in resource families. And I just want to note that because we've talked a lot in here about how it's really a goal for us to be using more families. I see commissioner Chu is giving me the hands up. She's like the only face I can see. So I'm assuming you are all giving me the hand, the thumbs up, but. This is something we've talked about. We'll talk a little bit more about it again later today um, with regard to the funding that we're giving out to do more of this right now. But we just thought this was really a. great data point that we were excited to share with all of you. Um, And then I'm going to end by just uh, swinging us over to slide 42, which is just a reminder of what's on the horizon for deep dives. Um, So, I will kick it to Selena in a second to do our annual report, but just want to note that you all have no meeting in August, so we will not have a deep dive that we're doing for you in August, Um, and then in September, we'll be doing an analysis of uh, CBO and program referrals. So, that's what's on the horizon, Um, and then I'm going to, I think uh, I'll pause quickly to see if there's any uh, urgent questions, and then I'll kick it to Selena. So, I'll just briefly pause while I close out of my screen.
1: Thanks, Chief. Uh, questions or comments from my fellow commissioners
3: before we move to the deep dive? Commissioner Chu, so your hand raised.
0: Thank you. Thank you
17: so much, Chief Miller, uh, especially for noting some of the points that made me very happy in the monthly stats. And um, I had a couple questions um, in addition to thank you all. I have literal notes where I've taken slide 33 Thanks for including this. slide 22 thanks for including this. So really thank you and your department for all of your work. Um, I was wondering on slide 10, it looks like there were two 14 year olds and and I think we talked about this last time, but the the younger or younger youth who are referred are always of really deep concern to me, so I'm wondering if there's any. Thing that you can tell us about those 2, especially younger you.
15: I, re- I can't without talking about their cases. So, I, other than to share your concern and that we're there's been a lot of internal conversation about those young people. Um, and, you know, why, do, why we detain them and what, whether we've tried everything we can before that happens or the situation, the nature of the case commissioner, but I, there's no way for me to really uh, give you insight without going into some of those details.
17: No that's, no, that's fair. Their confidentiality is of the utmost importance, um, but I'm glad to hear that there has been internal discussion about it. Um, I was wondering if you knew or had any insight as to slide twelve, what accounted for the spike in the um, average length of stay for
15: I put a note of uh, in custody of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really some of the things I mentioned, right? So we've had some young people and this included in May. I actually think we had an overlap of a couple kids who've been committed to us by the court. Right? So they're here for a while when that happens, we have a young person still waiting awaiting transport to DJJ. Um, You've all heard me talk about this case probably every time we've ever been here together. Um, And DJJ's admissions process is very slow because of the pandemic. They're actually still only um, going through the process right now of transferring in young people who were committed in February and March from counties across the state. Um, Our young person was committed in April, so we're still waiting. They're still waiting, the young person, for that to happen. Um, so that, obviously, you know, the longer that young person's here, that length of stay gets really skewed because that young person's stay has been so long. Um, and then, like I said, we have a, f- we, you know, we've had some, we've some very challenging placement cases right now. Um, and some cases where we're all struggling, everybody involved in ca- the cases with kind of the right outcomes for those young people. And those are um, impacting that as they're here with us for quite a while. Um, and then we have some cases, like I mentioned, that came in on you know some of the most uh, challenging cases from a trial perspective that we know will take a very long time to get to trial. And that's a, the, a very common effect of when there's like a homicide arrest. So all of those reasons mean for us that we're watching that happen. Um, we have a pretty consistent group of kids who are with us for a while right now.
17: That, that makes a lot of sense. Um... I'm wondering if that also tied into slide 14. It seemed when I was reading it, like there was a longer average length of stay for um, girls and girl identifying youth. And this was concerning to me, especially when paired with what also seemed to be um, a higher longer stay for, for black youth. And I'm wondering if this ties in a little bit to, the the issue that there is of punishing black girls and treating black girls as more adult and less as the youth that they are. And I'm wondering if there's anything. Right. Like if you have any insight into this, or if there's anything that we can do to to make sure that there isn't the sort of excessive punishment for
6: sure
15: um i think the most i can say about this case um, commissioner is that we have a very small number of girls that we're talking about i'm like looking at selena social nod if i'm getting this wrong okay we have a very small number of girls who've come through the hall this year and so their individual experiences with us create a very outsized effect on the statistics so i will share that one of the young people who um on their own motion was committed to the hall for a period of months actually was a young woman and so that does have an impact um because they you know that was the outcome that, that they actually advocated for in their own case and then were with us for a while so that's an example of how with so few girls coming through one case like that really gives you a data
6: point that looks extreme
17: thank you yeah i, I can see how that would that one case would definitely throw everything a little bit off. Um, I wanted to say thanks, and I was happy to see some of these stats on slides 17, 18, 21 to 22, and 33. Um, I'm also trying to do this pretty fast. I was glad <laughs> that there were no um, DRI overrides. Really glad to see uh, that there were exceptionally few non-mandatory detentions. Um, and I, I did have 1 quick question, which was, I, I wasn't sure I was reading it right that less than half. Of the cases of the referrals were referred to. Diversion, um, do we know what categories they were from? Sorry, this is on slides 21 and 22. Uh, I was trying to figure out if the ones that were referred to diversion were. Perhaps more from the misdemeanor cases, probation violation cases, and less from the felonies, or if there's some other way that we could again think about increasing the number of of diversions. Absolutely,
15: and I mean, and that's happening at a few different levels right now. So the folks at CARC are working closely with the police department, and to some degree, us on um, figuring out what their that police diversion model will look like, so that we wouldn't even be in the picture. That's still progress process going on. Um, I would note that Make It Right, which is the program operated by the DA's office, is only for felonies Um, and actually for fairly serious felonies. By design, the research shows us that restorative justice processes are more effective the more serious the behavior and the more serious the crime, right? Um, And it's a good reminder to all of us that we shouldn't always be like going toward restorative justice for the kind of less serious cases that actually don't have as good results, right? And so the DA's office is, is very intentional about using that for serious cases and including for some 707B type cases in the last year. So I can assure you that for those cases, as you see, still relatively low number, but for Make It Right, they tend to be for um, all felonies and more and more uh, serious felonies. And then CARK is a mix. So as you saw, there were five misdemeanors arrests. Well, as I'm telling you, I guess as you don't see, there are five misdemeanors. Oh no, you have this on slide 21. There are five misdemeanors that came in in the month, but there were nine cases that went to CARK. So obviously you're seeing a mix of cases going there. Um, and then, you know, I think diversion is the big question, right, like how much do we maximize diversion? And what does, what does it mean when we say it? It's like, I think we need to be very, very intentional I actually would like us to not use it as like a catch-all, but I think we should always be framing it as, this is police diversion. This is, you know, probation diversion. This is prosecution diversion. This is DJJ diversion, right? At every step, we can have an off-ramp out from what the traditional choice would have been. And maybe we should, like, in my dream, I want us to come up with a whole terminology around that. Because at the end of the day, the most important thing is what we're diverting to at each of those stages. So uh I would welcome you helping me think about that in your free time.
17: Absolutely. I I will join you in your dream, Chief Miller. Thank you. Fantastic.
1: Commissioner Broadkin, I see your hand raised.
9: Yeah, I'll throw my comments and, and thank uh, my fellow commissioner too for hers. Um except to say when you said we're back where we started from in terms of the population in the juvenile hall, my heart sank and it said. All this stuff we talk about, try to do everything. Is it no avail in terms of the overall population in the juvenile hall? So I can't help but sort of want to call people's attention to that. and. You know, you don't need to comment except, you know, just the vigor with which we have to do the kinds of things commissioner. Chu was talking about and all the off ramps and, you know, it's depressing (laughs) to see that number back where we started. Sure.
15: No, I totally and I hear that and, you know, we look at that too and I do still feel the need to acknowledge that. It's still a lot lower than it was before the pandemic started, right? There were 50 kids in the hall in December, the December, before I started here. There are actually 50 over that winter break. Um, and then it was back down by the time the pandemic started into the thirties and now we're at 18 and we're all like, oh, my God. Right? And so we should be like that. But we also don't know. We really still don't know what's going to happen when school reopens. Um, and, And when everybody gets back on transit and things like that, and so I would say to me, even if the numbers do go up a little bit, it doesn't mean like, we can't take our foot off the gas about always making sure we're looking at every opportunity. But it also may just be that numbers will go up a little bit because people are out in the world again. You know, so the question becomes, how do we make sure that we're using all of those diversion points, as I just as we just discussed as much as we can. And really making sure we're holding ourselves to the data, Commissioner Broadkin, right? To make sure that as we give you these monthly reports, you're not seeing an uptick in cases where we're making different decisions than we've been doing. I'm really proud of this, the May data, too. You
4: know?
9: um, I was going to say this later in the meeting, so it, it, yeah, I won't say it then. But um, the close juvenile hall working group heard a report from the air people, American Institute for research, where they really honed in on what a 707 B is and what the warrants are. And to me, it was very eye opening and it really demystified this idea of 707 B's and warrants. And I was going to recommend, which I'll do right now um, that at the next meeting that we have. We the whole commission hears those particular parts of that report um, because I think it is very eye-opening and can be sort of transformative for how we all think about this. Totally
15: bogarding my report. I actually have a slide later that I created just so that you could say that. <laughs> so we've already done it. So I'm uh, gonna table it for now, but just know that we we did create a slide for you, Commissioner Brocken. Paved the way for that suggestion. Um, do you have other questions about this, or should I we move on? Uh, <laughs> okay, um, I see uh, Commissioner Moses, I see your hand up. Uh, I have one
5: quick question. Thank you for your presentation again. The in one of your slides, I think you said there was one referral to residential program.
15: There was one referral to. Yeah. I'm sorry.
5: A res- residential treatment program. I believe this was him. Yeah. Oh, there's a
15: young person who's at San Francisco uh-huh. General. Is oh, that oh. what you're referring to?
5: Wow. Right. Okay. So that's one point. Oh, still yeah. there already? Okay. They're still
15: there. They're there for, for treatment right now.
5: That's what I Okay. Also, too, your initial, uh, the first um, slide program about the statistic the African American 56%, AARP 11, and mm-hmm. 18 mm-hmm. 33. So, we are seeing the rise of other ethnic group moving up is that. Is that it used to be, you know, or sometimes we have 10, 10 to 0, 10, 1. now we see some. You know, we're seeing a lot of my, you know, some other ethnic group are coming to YGC. you see
15: some of the API group? Right. Yeah. So that's 2 young people. Um, uh, 1 of whom has been with us for a while and 1 of whom just came in during that month. I see. Yeah, and that's what's so hard, right? When the numbers where we are, when you break them into percentages, it. They feel very significant and they can reflect 2 kids. Right? So, um, it's why we're trying to give you the numbers and the percentages to kind of keep the size of the pie uh, in front of mind for us.
5: Thank you for the clarification.
6: Thanks. Any other questions?
15: If there aren't i am going to um kick us over to our deep dive for the month which is our annual report i'm gonna turn it over to selena except that while she's getting oh and so selena needs the whatever that thing is now you have it okay i, I have just want to um give a cup an intro and a little bit of a thank you as we're um, getting this up and going this is the first time we've done our annual report this way what you're getting tonight is Um, in the slides is some of the data that we think is most like salient and interesting this the the data is part of a larger, actual narrative report. So there's actually a full 59 page report um, that you will receive. But we wanted to pull the data out for you tonight. Since you're not meeting in the month of August, we think it is a great time for you all to read the entire report. So we will be sharing it out with you um, as you get to August, including all the narrative. Um, and, you know, be very happy to take feedback on it. It is the 1st time we've done it this way. I want to give a giant shout out to Selena. I want to give a giant shout out to Maria um, and then also to Ling and Steven in our IT department who are absolutely critical to pulling a lot of the data. So really want to thank them all for this work. Um, I will turn it over to Selena and then, uh, you will be receiving the full report for your reading pleasure. <laughs> Selena, go ahead.
18: Great. Thank you, Chief Miller. Um, Let me start this presentation. Okay. Uh, So, as Chief Miller mentioned, these are some select statistics that we found the most interesting from the 2020 Annual Report. Um, Starting off with some background context, I just want to note that we have changed how we explore things from prior years. Um, annual reports and so something that you will see when you read the report and even in some of these slides is that, you know, we are constantly. Scrutinizing how we measure things and trying to make the most sense as possible of the data. And so, for some things, while we've tried to look at 5 year trends, um, we've changed measurement So it will make more sense and we can't always calculate exact um calculations about percent change over time, but we feel that this will be better going off in the future. Um, and we are also mindful that these statistics do not by any means share the full story, right? These are numbers. They don't share the full stories of the youth represented by these numbers, which is a limitation of administrative data. Um, and something that we should keep thinking about in future y- years when we work on these reports. Um, Another thing I wanna highlight that you will see in these slides and in the report is that this report, we've really tried to follow the guidance of the San Francisco Chief Data Officer, um, where we are trying to mask statistics in which the combination of demographics and geographic variables in combination with case statistics could result in re-identification of youth, particularly in 2020, when we've seen this drastic decline in our population. Um, We're really trying to protect the privacy and confidentiality of young people. So we mask sample sizes smaller than 11, except for in the case where we're presenting averages, such as average length of stay, average daily population, because of the fact that it's an average. And then some additional background context of um, how COVID has affected the numbers seen in this report and how this has affected You know, San Francisco overall and California overall. Um, so, as you'll see in this report, there have been drastic declines over the past couple of years. Um, but particularly in 2020 and. In San Francisco, overall, there was a crime decline of 24% in 2020, Santa Clara county, which, um, has. some comparability to San Francisco also experienced a 34% reduction in juvenile referrals from, 19, from 2019 to 2020, um, and then across California, juvenile, juvenile referrals declined 40% from 2019 to 2020, resulting in the lowest number of juvenile arrests on record since 1966. So, getting into our own statistics. The first thing uh, we wanted to highlight was admissions to juvenile hall. And in 2020, there were 299 admissions to juvenile hall, but there were 220 unique youth admitted into juvenile hall. And so the number of times that young people were admitted to juvenile hall ranged anywhere from one to five admissions. But the most common was that young people were admitted only once. So 77% of young people were admitted in 2020 only one time. Whereas about a quarter of youth were admitted more than once, and you'll see that the way that that breaks down is 15% were admitted twice and 8% were admitted between 3 and 5 times during the calendar year. And this is only in 2020,
2: so this doesn't account for how many admissions may have happened in 2019. Also, in the report, we highlight, um. Admissions to juvenile hall,
18: looking at 1 way demographic breakdowns, So admissions by race, ethnicity, by gender and by age, but also breaking it down in 2 ways to really hone in on gender differences. And what we saw in the 1 way breakdowns is that boys accounted for 77% of admissions girls accounted for 23%. But then you really see some interesting. Um, findings when you break the data down further and what when we looked at admissions by gender and race ethnicity what we found is that disparities in admissions by race ethnicity were even more pronounced for girls than boys so black girls accounted for two-thirds of all admissions for girls in comparison to black boys who accounted for 56 percent of all admissions for boys and while black, while girls in general only accounted for 23% of admissions, black girls were the third largest um, demographic group in admissions in 2020, following black boys and Latinx boys. And then when we broke down the de- the data by gender and age. What we saw is that in general, the population of girls admitted into juvenile hall skewed younger than the population of boys. So about three quarters of girls admitted to juvenile hall in 2020 were 16 or younger in comparison to only 57% of boys. And then another thing that we highlight is how admissions by gender and location of residents differed between boys and girls, so 50% of admissions for girls were for out-of-county residents in comparison to only 31%
2: of admissions for boys. Going into admissions to juvenile hall by primary detention
18: reason. um, So primary detention reason is something that we talk about every month in the monthly report. And so in 2020, about 72% of admissions to juvenile hall were for mandatory reasons with new law violations um, and warrants and court orders accounting for over two-thirds of all admissions. But what we see is that this differed when you broke this down by gender. Um, For boys, the most common primary detention reason was a new law violation, where one-third of boys who were admitted to juvenile hall were for a new law violation, so a 707 b offense. Um, And girls, it's actually warrants and court orders that were driving admissions. So over half of girls who were admitted in 2020 were for a warrant or court order. You see that this is the second most common reason for boys, followed by DRI score being greater or equal to 11. Whereas all the other reasons, which I know on the footnote of this slide only accounted for 20% of admissions. Um, For girls, the second most common reason was new law violations counting for 30%,
2: and then all other reasons accounted for less than 20%. Another thing we explored is how admissions to juvenile hall By offense detail
18: for new law violations differed by offense details. So, within new law violations, robbery was the most common offense for both boys and girls robbery actually accounted for 3 quarters of all admissions for new law violations um, and was the most common for both boys and girls. The next section that we're highlighting here is average daily population in juvenile hall. And so here you see that the ADP over the past five years has um, decreased significantly, particularly in the past two years. So there was a 21 percent decrease from 2018 to 2019, when it dropped from 47 to 37, and then there was a 54 percent decrease from 2019 to 2020, from 37 to 17. Overall, in
2: the past five years, there's been over a 60% decrease in the juvenile hall population. Looking
18: at ADP and juvenile hall by demographics, so this is for the full year, um, just like the past slide said, it was 17 youth um, as the overall ADP, and what we saw on average was that boys accounted for over 80% of the average daily population in juvenile hall. Black youth accounted for 60% about, Latinx youth for about 20%, and then the remaining about 6% was AAPI, white youth, and other race and ethnicity youth, each accounting for that 6%. Looking at ADP by age, you see that the largest population of youth Um, in juvenile hall is our 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds, each accounting for about 30% of youth, and then 18-year-olds accounting for 12.5%. And then these younger youth, 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds, also accounting for about a quarter of youth on average. And so one thing that I want to highlight here is that um, you don't see like 13-year-olds or youth over the age of 18, depicted in this graph and the reason why that is is because these age groups spent less cumulative days in juvenile hall than there were days in the year and so they
2: didn't account for like a full one young person in juvenile hall on an average day. Next going into average length of stay in juvenile hall. So
18: average length of stay over the past five years has stayed pretty stable, Um, beginning at 20 days in 2016, peaking, if you could say peaking at 23 days in 2018, and about 19 days in 2020. Here is one of the slides where measurement has changed over time. Um, Now, as you see in our monthly reports, we measure length of stay for youth in custody on the last day of the month, and then youth released in prior years, young people who were in custody on the last day of the year were included in that measurement of average length of stay, whereas now they are not. And so that likely had a very minimal effect on overall length of stay, but just something that I wanna highlight that this percent change over time is an
2: estimate, but the estimate is 5%. Next, looking at average length of stay for young people released
18: in 2020 from juvenile hall. You see that the minimum length of stay was zero days, so young people staying less than one full day. Median length of stay, nine days. Mean was 19 days. And again, the mean is more subject to um, being influenced by outliers. And the maximum length of stay in 2020 was 179 days. And you see that there are some differences by demographics, Uh, boys with higher lengths of stays than girls, um, although not by much, you don't see very different lengths of stay throughout. The one that kind of sticks out the most is young people of other race and ethnicity, but this is a very small sample size, so very subjected to outliers
2: in calculating averages. Next, looking at referrals to JPD
18: and petitions filed. So, over the past five years, we've seen pretty large decreases in both referrals and referrals with petitions filed, each accounting for or having about a 50% decrease over time. The decrease in referrals outpaced the decrease in referrals with petitions filed, which has resulted in a slightly Um, In a slight increase in the filing rate, so percentage of referrals with petitions filed. Also in 2020, there were 387 unique youth referred to JPD, that accounted for those 572
0: referrals.
2: Next, looking into referrals to JPD by location of residence,
18: you see that about a third of referrals to JPD are for young people who live outside of San Francisco with those from Alameda County and Contra Costa County accounting for the vast majority of those outside of San Francisco um, youth referrals. Within San Francisco, they account for about um, two thirds of all referrals. And then you see on this map to the right hand side Uh, referrals to JPD for youth who reside in San Francisco by their zip code of residence. And you see that um, focusing on the zip codes with the highest percentage of referrals, which are the darker shades of blue. um, Bayview, Hunter's Point accounted for a quarter of all referrals for youth living within San Francisco. Um, And then the slightly lighter shades of blue Um, reflect zip codes that accounted for 10 to 20% of referrals, which includes Sunnydale, which had 16% of referrals, and Mission, which accounted for 12%. And so these three zip codes together accounted for over half of all referrals um,
2: for youth living within San Francisco. Next, looking at referrals to JPD and
18: petitions filed by The most serious reason. Um, Let me pull up my notes real quick. So, of the 572 referrals in 2020, 60% were for felony offenses. Of those, um, 27 or 157 were for 707 B felony offenses. Um, And then 188 were for non-707 felony offenses. Um, misdemeanors accounted for just under 20% of referrals. Warrants and court orders accounted for about 12%. And then um, home detention violations, uh, changes of placement due to placement failure and probation violations accounted for the last about 8%. And then on the right-hand side, you see the breakdown Um, of petitions filed and you see that. Uh, over 85% of referrals with petitions filed were for felony offenses. On the bottom, um, I outlined the filing rate and you see that the highest filing rate is for 707B felony referrals at 70%. But those for 7 for non 707B felony referrals and probation violation referrals are only slightly lower at about 66-64 percent. And then you see that the filing rate for misdemeanor referrals is about 19 percent. And something that I want to highlight here is that within the data, the way that the data is structured, it's really hard to tell, like, what the reason is behind those Um, petitions being filed for misdemeanor referrals, But something that I was able to find within the data is that over half of the petitions filed for misdemeanors were related to
2: transfer in cases. Finally, the last section is on program referrals and completion rates.
18: And so here on the left-hand side, the graph has program referrals um, overall. That were entered into our system and so it was a total of 390 program referrals and this includes both court ordered programs and referrals that were made by J. P. D. and you see that the largest percentage is detention alternatives um, at about 2 thirds of all program referrals. Mental health therapy being the next um, most common probation. Uh, or program referral type followed by community service, anger management, drug and alcohol outpatient and then other, which I think was mainly case management. Um, and then on the right hand side, it breaks. This table breaks down the data by, um, Those programs that were completed in 2020, looking at the overall success rate. And what you see is that the overall success rate is about 2 thirds of young people completing programs successfully, which really mirrors the success rate for detention alternative programs. And that's because that accounts for the um, largest percentage of all program referrals. And then you see that um, mental health therapy, drug and alcohol outpatient, although it's not. large number of completions, they did have a very high success rate at over 90% for both of them. Drug and alcohol outpatient had 100% success rate. Um, Those with lower uh, successful completion rates include anger management at only 50% successful and then slightly higher for detention alternatives and community service. And that is all for our presentation. Um, I will leave this up for. If anyone has questions, I can go back to those slides.
3: Thanks, Selena.
1: Um, I wanted to just ask a question from the beginning Um, when you mentioned, and I may have this incorrect. um, It's a lot of data and information. But did you say that the. Uh, demographic that um, rose the most in 2020 was uh, African-American women in terms of commitments?
18: It didn't rise the most in 2020. This isn't something that we've explored over time. This is actually like new statistics that we added in because they were of particular interest to the department. But Black girls do account for the third largest group demographic group of young people admitted. Um, which is pretty shocking to all of us, although it shouldn't. Probably be shocking based off what we see from the data.
1: And then, and then was there also 1 about admissions related to robberies as well? And I wanted
18: to. Yeah, so here um, we break down new law violation admissions. And within young people who are coming in because of a new law violation, where it's a mandatory detention, um, robberies account for three quarters of those offenses.
1: Got it. So I I was, my question was more maybe for you and the chief in terms of, do we have any kind of understanding or uh, just uh, profile of like what is happening Uh, out in the city um, to understand the rise in those two areas in 2020? Yeah. The reason I asked specifically is because, you know, in 2020 we obviously have this kind of um, different situation with COVID and with things being closed and so I was just interested as to how that correlated.
15: Yeah, I wouldn't, I don't really think of it as
19: a rise. I think of it as probably other things declining more around it. I see. Um, Well, and I would say robbery has always been the top um, referral offense to JPD. So it's actually pretty consistent over time that robbery plays that big role. Exactly. And
15: I think that I would say that's a good reason also to have um, AAR bring in their data for us so we can talk more about what robberies really look like. What are they? Right? Is it a phone snatch? Is it a like, you know, real like significant force robbery with injury? Is it um, what would have been theft from a store, except that a kid, you know, accosted the security guard on the way out, which is actually on the books, a kind of robbery, right? So robbery, much like diversion, <laughs> can mean a lot of things. And I think to Commissioner Brodkin's point, if we want to really understand it um, and what's fueling kids getting booked in for it, it's worth digging into more because. Regardless of which of those things I just described, if it's if the arrest by the police is for what's called a 211, it is a mandatory booking. So it's a it's a really important discussion for us to dig into, and I think that AAR slides will help with that when they come and present.
1: That's very helpful context. I appreciate that, uh, Maria and Chief and Selena. Um, the reason I ask is, you know, there's this kind of. Uh, debate happening as we've seen citywide and in the media about, you know, well, everyone feels like crime is up and then every, the data says, well, it's down. And, you know, it's like, it's, I think in that context, obviously, we're missing context uh, probably as well. We're, we're getting information and we're not really uh, extrapolating it the way that we probably should. And so I was curious about those 2 data points when they were in the annual report, um, just because I know how things can get misconstrued when. They're uh, out there in uh, public, so I just wanted to make sure we had clarification on those and um, I appreciate the context that you provided.
19: Yeah. In 2021 crime is going up again, as we are seeing from our statistics, but in 2020, across the Bay Area crime went down, except for um, murder and and shootings. So very violent crime that affects specific communities in horrible ways has increased, but on the average crime is rock bottom. And that report that cited on the first slide that said that juvenile referrals went down 40% across the state came out right when we were doing our annual report and it blew my mind because a 40% decline in juvenile arrests in one year is pretty breathtaking. Mm -hmm. Um, and and the adult arrests went down 18% in the same time period. So, and then you can see the crime stats are down. Like, crime definitely went down a lot in 2020 is going up a little bit. But when you start, when you're at rock bottom, then everything is an increase. So all of those things are important to keep in context when we're thinking about crime trends.
1: Very helpful. Thank you. And I agree, Chief. um, I'd love to dig in more on uh, the definition of robbery, since it does sound like, from the data, it's the one of the biggest uh, reasons for, if not the biggest, for admission. So I'd love to dig in on that and have uh, to air present that uh, at a future meeting. Yeah. Um, Um, My fellow commissioners, I apologize for jumping in there. Uh, I see, um, Commissioner Brodkin, with your hand raised?
9: I must have just not lowered my hand. Um, Okay, slide 19. I, I mean, I feel like I have never seen that data before. It just cries out for more information. Like who is saying whether it's success or not? Where is this data coming from? Is this every individual PO declaring some? Why do we have like just almost no referrals for case management? Like one, what do, this this is such. Uh, new data. It's such important data about is this accurate? Where does it come from? Can we drill down on this and actually understand it better? So, you know, what is an anchor management referral? And what is a detention alternative referral? And what do you, what does success mean? And then, you know, why mental health therapy? is like 17 out of 390. So I, I just feel like this slide is new information for us it cries out for details anything you can say about where you get it but what you're going to do to tell us more about what this slide means because it's like one of the most important slides we've seen
19: Maria. So that's why Selena included it because she's been listening, Commissioner Broadkin, and she knew that it was going to be the most salient for you. Um, so Selena did look at 2020 data, and that's what you're seeing here. And then in September, we're going to do a deep dive on 2020 and 2021 uh, for the first six months of program referral data. And we, and I'm glad you're asking these questions because I think if you don't mind, I'll I'll document them now, and we will make sure they're incorporated into our presentation. Of, who enters the data, when they enter it, who decides what success is. I can say quickly that detention alternatives primarily includes electronic monitoring. Uh, it also includes MNC, YCD, CARC, and CJCJ. Um, and we'll make sure that in September that we're really providing like a good um, glossary of what is what. <laughs> um, And uh, a whole background on what the data collection looked like historically, and then the evolution of what it's looking like in 2021, because we have been making a big push to do a better job both of making program referrals but also of capturing the data Um, because it's a big gap as Commissioner Brodkin knows throughout the city, it's very hard to know who is making referrals. Um, Another thing that we're gonna start capturing is not only what referrals does JPD make but we are capturing when youth are already connected to other services that only just started recently but it also seems like a gap in understanding when a young person comes to us if they're already working with ycd like we want to know that because that would be the reason why we didn't refer them to ycd um so yes yeah, so i hopefully september will answer all those questions and please feel free to give us more questions here or email them to us because that's what we're going to be working on while you guys take your vacation <laughs> we're going to be really digging into this topic i would, i was going to
15: just say this is the trailer and that will be the movie <laughs> <laughs>
19: And just
18: something else I want to highlight is that um, 2020, I think, was the start of really making an effort to enter this data make sure it's getting entered in a reliable way. And since then, in recent months, we've started a QA process where, you know, we send out to probation officers, the programs that are in our system currently, so they can see what they are and make sure to add any that might be missing. You know, we're really trying to capture. All programs that young people are currently participating in and, you know, building on what we've done in the past, which is just JPD referrals. And like Maria said,
0: capturing all programs that young people are connected to.
19: On that note, we would also like to hear from the commission about what you would like us to do our deep dive for October's meeting, because we do like to basically start the planning and analysis, like, 3 months in advance. I have a suggestion that we could maybe dig into the DRI and the history of the DRI and we have a lot of really robust analysis of the DRI and how it scored and what are the outcomes of it and how that affects admissions to juvenile hall. Um, and how maybe it should evolve um, that could be, that's an option. I'm happy to pull up the list or review, like, say, allow the list of other things that you guys have wished for in the past if that helps or if there's anything that's top of mind. We'd love to hear from you.
9: Just save time. I'll put mine in the chat.
1: Okay. All right. Other questions or, oh, I see Commissioner Chu, your hand just raised. Go ahead.
17: Thank you. Um, I will definitely support a deep dive on the DRI and DRI overrides as soon as we can. That's something that I've been asking for. Um, in the many, many, many months that I've been here, um, <laughs> uh, going back to, um, the slides for this deep dive. I just wanted to know on slide 9, I was really glad to see the decrease in. ADP, um, And then on slide 15, I was wondering. If you had insights on what accounted for, it seemed like an N-300 difference between the referrals and referrals with petitions filed.
19: The pandemic. (laughs) Could could you hear a little more about that? So, referrals, so that's just arrests. So, we're seeing um, overall crime down in San Francisco 24%. And then we're seeing just juvenile arrests down significantly. I think uh, Chief Miller has alluded to this before kids not going to school means there's less transportation around town. So, there's like we often will see things that are allegedly robberies happening on transit. A lot of arrests are made there. And stores were closed down. So there's significant reductions in petty theft. And this is again true for juveniles and adults. There's massive declines in theft from stores um, just because stores weren't open. So the opportunity is not there anymore. Um, Are you?
15: Commissioner, are you asking about the what looks like a relative closing of the gap
19: between arrests? Oh like the reports? higher rate of petitions so, being. Yeah. Passed. So um,
15: what I would Sorry. say, I mean what 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 I would say our I think our best um, answer to that is that, you know, in previous years what you see in those other numbers would have included a lot more lower level and misdemeanor arrests by police. Um, And we don't typically file right on misdemeanors in San Francisco. This year, we saw an incredible decline in arrests for less serious things. So they got kind of winnowed out during the pandemic. And so the cases, the incidents that resulted in arrests tended to be disproportionately more serious. So more of them proportionally were going to result in in the the DA's office taking the case forward.
18: I also want to note that the Y axis here kind of makes it look like more of a closing of a gap than it is because referrals were so high in prior years. I just pulled up the table in the annual report. In 2016, um, 46% of referrals had petitions filed and in 2020 it was 48%. So it hasn't changed that much. And you see that in the percent petitions filed um, over the past five years, it has increased, but not a whole
15: lot. Right, I mean, and it should be right (laughs) if we're we're really focusing this system on the most serious things we should see that gap closing. To some degree,
6: thank you you.
17: everyone. Yeah, that that was exactly what I was thinking was I was I was hopeful. Uh, referrals, fewer arrests that were unnecessarily happening to our youth, right? Because each contact is so traumatic, and if it's unnecessary, if it's one of these that a petition doesn't end up being filed, why was there, why was there that unnecessary trauma for our youth? What is it doing to our communities, and especially our communities of color? Um, it really does erode trust, I think, and. So, I would hope that there's, and obviously we're not the police commission, so we don't really have a lot of control over this, nor do we have any sway over the DA's office. Um, But I just, I would hope that there's something that we could do to really make sure that there aren't any unnecessary referrals and unnecessary arrests.
1: Other questions or comments from commissioners about the, uh. In reports,
10: yeah, I got yeah. I got 1, um. You know, we, we always talk about and I'm looking at some of the data here and we always talk about, like, what the data looks like and we always talk about the negative and, you know, like what what the impact was, right? And I'm thinking about, you know, the Mayor's Opportunity for All program that actually this summer that came out, right? Where Opportunity for All actually hired over 3,000 young people, right? And actually gave them an opportunity to be able to make some money and have some funding coming into their household. So, you know, I always kind of like to highlight sometimes, let's highlight some of the positive that goes on. Let's highlight that, you know, that even though we have a higher number than usual, because we're opening back up, recovery, whatever, but it's not as bad, you know, as it could be sometimes, you know, and me as a CBO, I always say when I see numbers like this, you know, you know our way I look at data and I think about the kids even getting up to juvenile you know sometimes for me it's like damn excuse me but you know did I fail in some way and you know have I failed you know some of our young people right because about time they make it to you all that means that for somehow us as cbos have to take responsibility that we that we off <laughs> to at some point too right we should have no you know, and then, and I guess it's, you know, it's it's not it's unrealistic to have no cause it's gonna always be. Kids are gonna be kids, they're gonna do stuff. And and just that, you know, opening up that job opportunity through this summer and seeing how many kids was actually hired because I was actually giving away checks and you know, working with JCYC down there and it, you know, it's like thirty four hundred kids and, you know, getting checks and picking up checks, right? So, I mean, I just thought about it and I was watching the young people come in and, you know, they were all happy. They were all cool, they were, you know, like, wait, we making money, you know, we cool, we get, you know, we okay, you know, and, you know, all that is just like, you know, we always look at like the, you know, the bad data, but do, you know, sometimes we have to look and I know, you know, we have commission, but sometimes we have to look at some of the effect that this stuff has too, like the opportunities for all, right? Um, and you know, and give it, you know, and give kudos and give credit to what credit is due. Cause it could be, you know, San Francisco small, and you know, I don't know what this recovery gonna look like. And at the end of the day, as for us, you know, as CBOs, I always say, you know, let's let's take some responsibility too. But I'm glad, Chief, that you clarified what robberies are. Because, you know, for 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 the commissioners that don't know, a robbery can be you know actually because it says robbery doesn't mean it's actually a robbery right you actually touch somebody picking up a candy coming out the store turned it into a robbery instead of a little petty theft or something you know so we you know it's um it gets a little and we then we ask ourselves like why you know why the data shows that all the African Americans all the black kids are getting picked up or you know pulled in for that small incident they don't do that in the sunset or they don't do that you know white kids don't do that because it's just as many little white kids out there picking up and you know getting and doing touching but what they do just let them go and don't add it so is that why our juveniles are so full of black kids and and latinos and you know so i don't know you know it becomes for me you know um i don't know it's a system so we have to go back and think about the how the system is set up. And, you know, like, I would love to see the data on how many times a young, a little young white kid got pulled over and just got to let go. And I know that's data we'll never see, you know, but I would love to see that kind of data. And then, you know, the same incident, the little the little black kid in the neighborhood got pulled over and he end up, you know, getting arrested or taken downtown or fingerprinted or whatever they do, you know, so, but I would love to see that data that, you know, and I know that data we can't never go into, but it it would be great to see how that data looks sometime, you know. So, but no, I just like, for me, it's just like highlight the good things too that happen sometime in San Francisco and appreciate that, you know, we do have programs and a lot of programs and a lot of CBOs and a lot. And that's why our our rates are so low, is that a lot of people are actually doing the work. So, you know, and I, you know, I, I say, you know, sometimes people talk about coming into communities, right? You know, like I'm in community all the time, but I don't know everybody in the community. I don't know what everybody does, right? I know it's way more uh, organizations doing the work because I I'm not the only one out there doing it. So I, you know, I see when I look at this data for me, I see like, wow, you know, that's that's it's a lot, but it's not a lot. But how do we just even take that number down? So. I mean, it's more of a comment and a statement than it was anything else, but I do like to highlight the good parts of what, you know, what happens in San Francisco.
15: Yeah, I think point well taken. Um, and you know, your point about, like, what isn't happening, which kids aren't making their way to us is a really good point. Commissioner, the police don't track data in a way that enables us to do an analysis of what didn't happen, right? Um, which kids they interacted with, if they didn't bring in, in a way that we can then track the data. It's a. It is a, a gap right in the way city, the city has information that makes it totally hard for us to answer the really important question. You just asked, which is how do we. Can we really measure disparities in treatment right? by of kids, um, I do think that the case file review data that commissioner is interested in bringing to all of you. Does show more nuance about the kids who've been in custody, but to your point, it's going to be a focus on the kids who did wind up here. Still think it's really useful to us because it helps us make sure we're going to that we have what they need. Right in our system or outside our system for them. Um, but I appreciate your point about highlighting the things that go well, and certainly things like opportunities for all are critical, right? Way beyond the safety blanket. They're absolutely critical for our kids in the summer. And all year round. So, thank you for the comment.
3: Thank you. Chief. Thank you. Commissioner
1: uh, other questions about the annual report commissioner Maldonado commissioner Moses. All right.
0: right, Joe and commissioner shorter.
2: I'm sorry what are you asking me if I have a question?
1: Yeah, just checking in before we move on. Um, okay.
14: Um no, I think that the the um the concerns or questions I that I had were similar to um Commissioner Brockins, and I think we fully vetted and addressed that. So, thank you.
1: Great. All right. Uh, Thank you so much, Selena. Um, I think if this, if, if uh, as the chief said, there's the trailer and the movie, then the report will be the bee tree for all of us for August. Exactly. So appreciate it. Um, and I know that uh, over the years, the annual report is the gospel, right? For the department and and really the driving document that moves all the policies and operations. So um, I do urge, uh, my fellow commissioners and the members of the public to really dig deep on it um i know the the staff uh up at woodside do a really good job uh every year putting this together and i do appreciate the new format um that it's taking so um i'll be looking forward to my copy
15: <laughs> your summer reading um, selena can you give me back the little square i think you have the power yes how do i do that Thank you. Just put your cursor on it. and move. It. You can
4: just drag and drop the icon onto her name, or you can ri- highlight her name and right click and then change her
0: role to presenter. Um, okay. Make presenter, you should have it.
6: Thank you. Okay. So, the rest of my report, can you see my screen that says Chief's report and all of that? Yes. Yes. yes.
15: yes. Okay. Fantastic. Um, sorry, this is, I don't know why I can never do this. Okay. So, i um, just quickly going through the rest of my report for you, the kind of what's becoming kind of the standing items each month, more or less. Um, I'm going to just quickly go through and then I can take questions. So I just wanna touch on workforce and our finances. Um, We talked about one counselor from the hall retiring last month. They actually just left, I think last week. So I just, I'm still highlighting that. They don't want us to kind of um, give them accolades or appreciation, so I won't, but I just want to acknowledge that we are down one more counselor. Um, As you know, we have a vacant supervising probation officer position. We actually have more than one, but we are in the process right now of um, filling one of those positions um, in the, in, the, uh, in an effort to make sure that we kind of have the right organization right now. Um, as folks have heard me say before, this isn't about making the department bigger, but these are uh, civil service positions. We have to go through their formal kind of hiring process just to even reorganize within the department. So we're working on that right now. Um, so we're trying to get that that process done. Um, we have invited some community participation on the interview panel for that position. These are again, civil service positions, so people have to take a test and get onto a city approved list and then we are able to go forward and interview people who are on that list. So I can't get into those details other than to let, you know, we're in that process. uh, Right now, hope to have it done before we see you again. We will have it done before we see you again, I believe. Um, And then I just wanted to touch on something that's not specific to any 1 position in the department, but really is affecting this department and it's the vaccine mandate. Just wanted to keep the commission in the loop. So, um, I think folks know that the city had put out an order recently that once the FDA gives formal approval to any of the vaccines. That city employees will have 10 weeks to become fully vaccinated if they're not, and if they don't do that, that they will not no longer be able to stay in their positions in the city. There are exemptions for religious and medical reasons, but they're pretty limited. Um, so, we knew that we had that coming down the pike. Um, beginning this week, beginning last week, all city employees are required to report our vaccination status to the city. Folks who uh, report and provide documentation that you are fully vaccinated no longer have to wear your masks in a lot of buildings, although Juvenile Hall remains masked. Um, so, we knew we were kind of operating in that framework. People are starting to report their status. Some people can take masks off and we knew we were waiting for that FDA approval. Last Thursday, last Thursday, the, um, health, off city, the health officer of San Francisco um, issued a new order. It applies not just to city agencies, but also to any businesses that, it, that fall under the order. And the order is that for certain high risk settings, um, staff have to get vaccinated now. So they have 10 weeks from last week to get fully vaccinated. This applies to medical settings. It applies to jails and juvenile hall, other congregate care settings um, public and private. Um, It's an order of the health of the health officer of the city, um, which I'm beginning to really understand is an incredibly powerful position Um, from this pandemic. I've really learned that. And uh, it really means that we are no longer uh, waiting for the FDA to approve any vaccine. Uh, People have to go ahead now if they haven't already been vaccinated and be able to show by mid-September that they're fully vaccinated or may no longer be able to stay employed in their positions. Again, city jobs and also private jobs, but that's a real sea change for us. Just to let the commission know, um, there are folks in the department who are very uncomfortable with the idea of getting vaccinated. Um, for historical reasons, for cultural reasons. And so we're working with our staff to bring in some folks to provide education, um, either in groups or maybe even one-on-one opportunities for people to be able to ask questions of medical professionals, of medical professionals from their own communities, from their own racial and ethnic backgrounds, really trying to offer some opportunity in the coming weeks for people to uh, be reassured about the safety and also the real importance to their health of getting vaccinated. You know, we've seen how the Delta variant is affecting everybody. We're really seeing how it's affecting our Black community here in San Francisco. Um, And we really, uh, we want to make sure that we're not spreading that here at JPD. So I wanted to give you that information. In terms of finance slash budget, um, so the city uh, budget was approved uh, JPD's budget was approved. It's the same budget that we've talked about previously at the board of supervisors. They took 2 actions with our budget that I did want to report back to you on. Um, they took 2 pieces of our budget and put those funds on reserve. So, what that means is that for both of those, we need to go to the board um, and make the case for 1 where we either need those funds or We need them to come out of reserve um, the main thing. So, the, uh, One piece of funding they put on reserve is the money that we're getting from the state starting this year to um, resource San Francisco's local response as the state closes down DJJ. So as of July 1st, uh, juvenile court can no longer send kids, no longer commit kids to DJJ. And obviously we're charged at the county level with coming up with our plan. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a later slide. Um, And there's money that comes from the state for that purpose to every county. We already have to bring our plan to the board of soups um, and vet it with them and walk them through what we're doing and they were going to have to approve the use of the funds anyway. Um, so it makes sense for them to have those funds on reserve and we'll go to them when we we have our plan ready for their review um, and ask them to release the funds so that we can use them in the way that we collectively identify um, for our kids who would be facing the most serious cases. Um, And then the other piece of our funding that they put on reserve is half of our overtime costs for the coming year. Um, So we are uh, very careful in how we're using and tracking overtime, um, but making sure uh, that we're even more careful right now And how we document it, how we make decisions about when we use it, so that when we are starting to run up against that halfway mark, we can go to the board and make a case to have funds released. I should note that from last year to this year, we already dropped in the budget, our overtime line item by 325,000 dollars. So we already were coming into this budget with a significantly reduced overtime Ask. And then the board took half of that half of the remaining funds. Um, and put it off in reserve. So I just wanted to let you know that, and we'll keep you updated as we do have to go back to the board for those funds. Um, I will move us to the next slide, DJJ closure. So um, as, as mentioned, I know every county has to have a subcommittee to plan what our response will be to not having DJJ as an option anymore for our youth. It's called the 823 subcommittee. You've heard me say this before, I'll say it again, worst name ever for a subcommittee because nobody knows what it means. So we are gonna be renaming it most likely like our DJJ Realignment Subcommittee, or we don't know, we wanna take suggestions from our members. It's still called this today. Um, Our group was charged with before July 1st, identifying what our interim plan will be for those highest level kids, if the court does need to make kind of that highest level secure commitment of a kid, um, uh, while we're engaging in a larger long-term planning effort. So, our committee looked at the 2 options we really had available in the immediate term for young people. 1 was our own juvenile hall um, and the other was Sonoma county's juvenile hall. They're the only county in the Bay area that are offering up a new kind of secure program in the wake of DJJ's closure that other counties could contract to send kids to. So those were really the 2 options we have in the moment. We had to make a decision in the moment kind of our temporary plan and our group um, uh, really overwhelmingly wanted to keep our kids here in San Francisco accessing services here closer to their families here. And in a hall that's already more representative of the kids that we have in our hall of the demographics Sonoma County's demographics of their detained kids are actually quite different than San Francisco's. So that was the interim plan that our committee approved beginning in August. That that committee um, will be engaging in a much more re- robust planning process to really create, like, what is our long term plan in San Francisco for kids who would have been at that highest level of court orders. Um, and by January 1st, we actually have to submit our plan to the state. It has to have been um, reviewed by our board of supervisors before January 1st. So. Even though we feel like it's a luxury now to have a few months to do the planning, it's going to be still pretty fast as a process. Those meetings are all public. They're all recorded. They're on our website. Um, I invite you to watch them if you haven't. And um, I think we have a really great subcommittee. I'm super. Honored to be serving with the folks on the committee. Great both um, agencies involved and also even more um, community members um, and advocates for youth. So really excited to be working along with their company. In terms of of home placement, we've talked about this before, but we were able to identify funding um, through the budget from last year unspent funds probation had that we wanted to commit to supporting the creation of new resource family options for us. Um, really trying to move more toward reliance on those kinds of placements instead of STRTPs, group homes for our kids, and especially as an alternative to detention at the beginning. So, um, we are working with the Department of Children, Youth, and Families. They're actually managing the logistics of the request for proposals, the competitive process, um, which is what we need to do to do this funding in San Francisco. Um, Applications were due on Monday. The city has received two applications, um, and now it goes through the kind of uh, vetting and scoring process. Awards will be announced July 30th. I'm just going to say before any of you ask me that we are apparently not able to share during the process who the applicants were, (laughs) but that is fully released at the end. Um, And uh, I do want to thank DCYF for doing a lot of the mechanical work of making this happen for us. Going on to the closed Jupamaha Working Group, and I will absolutely look to Commissioner Broadkin if she wants to add to this, but um, this is where we uh, teed you up, Commissioner Broadkin, for your suggestion for the future agenda item. at, the, at, a, at a recent meeting, um, AIR, the American Institute for Research, presented in a very abbreviated way because they didn't have a lot of time to do it, the results of their um, case file review. They did a very detailed review of the case files, probation files of 77 young people detained from March to September of 2020. So they kind of, we, were, we selected kind of randomly out of 220, they picked 77 and just dug through those files to really um, create kind of profiles of each of the young people and then analyze the data. Um, a number of us who heard their presentation and have seen the slides were really hungering for a deeper presentation. And so I know that Commissioner Broadkin is suggesting that that happen here. And I believe we would be doing it in September. I'm super excited um, at the prospect of y'all uh, having that happen here. And then generally beyond that, in terms of the Closed Juvenile Hall Working Group, we learned at the meeting right before this tonight um, that it sounds like kind of by the, maybe by August now, the final set of recommendations will be going to the Board of Supervisors. Um, The Board of Supervisors is still committed to the December 31st closure timeline. Um, Some of you may have seen your own fellow Commissioner Rodkin and myself and some other folks quoted in a Chronicle article about this issue a few weeks ago. and just how challenging it is and um, the, our hope that we can continue to move forward, but not that that timeline may be the thing that happens. Um, but anyway, the idea is that the report will go to the board and that sometime, hopefully in September, they'll sign off on some recommendations and directions for where we may look for a new hall and what kinds of additional steps the city needs to take to really have great um, alternatives to detention. Um, and then finally, just a couple additional updates I wanted to share. Um, one is I want to talk for a second about Third Sector. So we talked about this a little bit at a prior meeting. Um, Third Sector is a private consulting firm that we have engaged to support us and our community partners in some really important work going forward. Um, they've done some really great work with different uh, juvenile systems around this, the country and also alternatives to juvenile detention and juvenile and court systems around the country. Um, we had funding left over from the prior year budget that we either had to give back to the city or identify purposes for around racial equity improvements. And so the city let us keep this funding for this purpose. Um, We've had some really great meetings and conversation with um, the folks at 3rd sector who are going to be doing this work with us. Uh, right now they're in the process of um, looking at everything from the blue ribbon panel reports to everything that's come out of the closed juvenile hall work group information that's come out of some of these meetings. Um, And trying to start meeting with folks to really understand all the issues that we want them to kind of help us uh, work through together. So they've had focus groups with some of our staff Um, right now. They're planning targeted conversations with community providers, including the juvenile justice providers, association and other folks. Um, And then also figuring out how to really hear from young people directly, and then they'll be circling back and laying out for all of us what their proposed uh, work plan is. To really bring together probation staff, community voice, young people and families, and do very concrete work efficiently on a relatively short timeframe around a variety of issues, including things like maximizing the use of diversion. Rethinking what our own model of probation should look like within the department and in partnership with other folks and in working with both community and probation to collectively identify what all of our measurable objectives should be. So, what are the things that we're all going to identify as our data wins and then how are we going to hold ourselves to it? Um, we would like to suggest that 3rd sector come and speak with all of you probably in October. Cause I think your September meeting is going to be really chunky and full um, about this plan to take your feedback, walk you through what they've kind of heard initially from these listening conversations that they're having right now. And, um present to you their work plan and get feedback from you. So I wanted to offer that to you as part of my presentation. Very excited about having them help all of us kind of navigate what are really hard collaborative conversations that we need to do. Um, And then finally, I want to talk about some things that the Annie Casey Foundation is working on. For folks who don't know, the Annie Casey Foundation has been involved for a long time in reducing the um, disproportionate minority confinement, in reducing the over-reliance on confinement period for kids. Um, They do a lot of different kind of wellness work around young people Um, and then more lately really looking at transforming probation as a whole. Um, So not just focusing on detention but across the board how do we rethink what that looks like and maximize the use of diversion. Same things that are already very much what we're talking about in San Francisco so two different ways that we are now and will be working with them here in San Francisco. One is that they have launched across the country what they're calling their Youth Justice and Employment Community of Practice. So they've identified a number of sites around the country that they're working with to really make sure that those sites are uh, leveraging federal workforce initiatives and federal workforce dollars in ways that then get to juvenile justice kids. And so Commissioner Spingola, to your point, Um, We know what an important opportunity workforce is for our kids, and this is an initiative to make sure that we're not missing anything, right? That we're really making those connections to the kids who we know need those opportunities. Um, Looking at how other places around the country do it really smartly, make sure we're doing it that way. Um, They are creating this process and this continuum. So, in San Francisco, they've reached out to probation, the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, DCYF. Um, and also some local CBOs. They're also working collectively with the National Youth Employment Coalition across the country. That's just starting now. We'll give more updates over time, but I'm grateful that they've uh, selected San Francisco as one of the jurisdictions that they really wanna work with, because I think our ability to um, make the best use we can of federal resources is is just the way forward, right? We should never let that stuff go. Um, And then the other thing, which is hot off the press was announced on Monday, The Andy Casey Foundation's uh, Transforming Juvenile Probation Initiative has joined forces with the California Probation Chiefs. So, CPOC is the Chief Probation Officers of California. I am one of them, obviously. Um, And uh, the Casey Foundation has decided to partner with CPOC and really hold itself out as a resource to all counties across the state as we rethink what juvenile probation should look like, what's the right size of it, How is it different than right now? And again, as I said, there's strong emphasis on diversion. So this is a really, really exciting resource that has effectively fallen into our lap. Um, Having the Casey Foundation, we've already worked with Casey in different ways over the years, but now having them kind of on call for us as a resource to support all the stuff we wanna do, I just think it's really cool. And I wanted to bring it to attention. Like I said, it was just announced on Monday. So it's still um, news, it's news. Um, So, I want to share that with you and uh, those are my reports to you for this evening. I'll stop sharing so I can see all of your faces.
1: Thank you chief Um, going back to the. Vaccine mandate um, is there concern uh, if the staff that um, choose not to get vaccinated in the 10 weeks. That that would create a staffing issue for the hall is it that uh, many um, staff at the hall?
15: Sure. So, so we don't know for sure yet. So all staff have until the 29th of the month to report their status. It doesn't come directly to me. I just want to be clear. This has been um, the city's designed this in a way that doesn't bring up any HIPAA violations or anything like that. So there's a confidential portal. That all city employees report their status through. You all may have gotten that request too, as commissioners. Yeah, I can seeing the thumbs up from Commissioner too. So you all got, you also have to do this. Um, and, and all that we receive as the department is a list of who has been cleared to take their mask off and who hasn't been cleared. So we don't know whether somebody has to keep their mask on because they're not vaccinated because they haven't yet reported their information in the system, or because maybe they have a medical or religious waiver, that doesn't mean they have to get vaccinated, but will mean they stay masked, right? So we don't get to know the reason. Um, and really across the city, only about half of city employees have reported at all to date. So one thing I should do is be really responsible and encourage all of you to please do it if, you, if it's a requirement for you. We're gonna be working really closely with our staff to encourage anybody who hasn't reported just to enter the report, and it really won't be President Ariano until we have that—that that we know how many folks here may be in the situation that you just described. Um, but I will candidly say we are worried about it. This is something that Bobby Uppal and, and I have talked about quite a bit. He's in the meeting too right now. Um, you know, we have been pretty bare bones on our hall staffing for a variety of reasons, and uh, we know we have—we're re- anticipating retirements coming up. I don't know whether this will just expedite retirements for some folks, um, and uh, it is something that we do worry about when we try to do our hall staffing. Um, we've, you know, uh, it's also why that overtime money needs to stay in the budget. Right now, we may have few people leaving the workforce and leaning more heavily on overtime if we have to in the coming months until Department of Public Health reaches um, the point where we no longer need a quarantine unit for kids as they come in, we know we will have multiple units operating even with low numbers. So we are worried about it, um, but we don't know the scope of how worried we should be yet.
1: And is there um, a, uh, do you understand, is there a process that's been set up uh, that you are aware of for how the, the um, I guess, is, is it termination would work? I mean, if they choose not to, Get it their, their yeah. vaccine. I mean, how does has that been shared with you or how how would that work in terms of. Their years of service to the department and, you know, is it outright, you know, just you lose all of that by not getting the vaccine.
15: Right, I mean, nobody loses their years of service, right? So if somebody leaves, they have their years of service, right? And their retirement. Um, We don't know the answer to that yet. The city's just figuring it out. I candidly, I think the city thought it had more time because we were going to be waiting for the um, FDA approval, which wasn't anticipated until sometime this fall. And then there was going to be 10 weeks after that, right? For the city to work it all out. And for the vast majority of city employees, that is still the case. But for a small number, anyone working in the jail, anybody working in the hall, There's a question about whether this also applies to probation officers and attorneys who go into those facilities. So right now we're being told. It probably will apply to all the attorneys who go into those custodial settings. And all the uh, probation officers who do as well. We don't know we haven't been definitively told yet. So, it's really a small part of the city employment that's been hit with this new piece. And so it's now on the Department of human resources to expedite. Figuring out what that separation
6: protocol is going to look like.
1: Got it understood. Yeah, I I noticed the I was following it and I saw the um, when it was tied to the FDA approval and then I saw last week's news and I was like, this sounds like it would affect us. And so I'm glad that you put it in the chief's report and addressed it because. With the staffing uh levels that the department has had over the last year and then potentially uh this now being thrown into the mix, I was concerned about um staffing moving forward and overtime and all that, so I appreciate your addressing it and um sounds like it's uh and I, and also I should say I appreciate you um mentioning that you're working to bring in. Uh, Folks to uh, talk about the vaccine and uh, the, the health uh, associated with it and and the benefits and so forth simply because, you know, we don't want anyone to get sick either. So, um, so I think I appreciate um, your efforts to uh, encourage the staff to do it. I understand their concerns uh, historically, culturally and so forth that you mentioned. um, But I also wanted to. Express my concerns about the staffing as well for yourself and maintaining a a whole that can serve the youth that are out there, um, you know, moving forward.
15: Thank you. And, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't note the racial equity implications of this because it really breaks down along racial lines here. And, um, you know, I don't want people to lose their livelihoods. And so we are going to really make that effort to provide opportunities for education. If folks haven't seen it, there was a really good op ed written last week. I think in the Chronicle by Dr. Ayanna Bennett and some other black doctors um, really urging San Francisco's black community to get vaccinated. It's a great, great piece. I can share it with Pauline to share with all of you. not just as my report, but in the hopes that you also will share it with people because this is a real matter of it's a life and death matter for people with the new variant in particular. We just really want people to be safe.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Other questions uh, or comments for the chief about her uh, remaining chief's report?
3: Commissioner yeah. broken is your hand raised?
0: It must be permanently up there. (laughs) I'll take it down. I
6: have to
1: (laughs) Other Um, questions? I just wanted to respond,
15: if I could, President, I want to respond um, to something that Commissioner Brodkin put in the chat um, about girls. Um, and My answer to you is 100 percent yes. If this data tells us nothing else, it's that we really need to have a renewed focus and discussion on that. Um, And uh, and as we start embarking on this work with 3rd sector, I'm going to also make sure they're speaking directly with some of our providers who do focus on services for girls as well, Um, because. uh, Like Selena said, the data shouldn't surprise us. We look every day at who's booked in our hall, but it doesn't mean it's not shocking. And especially for black girls, and that is data that we see across the region. It's very mimicked in other counties. Um, And in fact, Santa Clara, uh, the court and the Young Women's Freedom Center, which is also in Santa Clara and the Vera Institute, which is also working in Santa Clara, recently convened a uh, Bay Area-wide conversation around what a regional model for supporting girls could look like. You saw how high the out-of-county data is for the girls who come into our system. So I think it's a very timely and important conversation for San Francisco to be a part
6: of.
1: You touched now something, Chief, on something that I was, was forgot to ask when Selena was presenting um, about the out of county aspects. Um, I would appreciate if there was maybe doesn't have to be right away or in the you know next few meetings, but just uh, uh, addressing that deep dive. You know, is there you know partnerships with other counties? You know, it look like Contra Costa and Alameda and maybe Solano were the ones that yeah. um, that you know are connected most with the hall and admissions and. You know, I'd love to hear what um, just region-wide collaborations or partnerships between the different counties there are, since it yeah. does seem like I, I don't recall the number. Was it half or forty percent? Um, or from out of county?
15: Yeah, it's a lot, and for the girls in particular. And so uh, all of those counties are kind of in the mix in the conversation about what we can do about girls. Um, but it's really specific to girls that conversation right now. Um, I think it's in a really important question for us, period. And for me, I will say just hearing what other is happening in some other counties, which I, I was at a CPOC meeting last week. So I did was able to talk to some of the neighboring counties about what they're doing around. Different issues was helpful. We do have a lot of kind of bridge building to do. We have some providers that are in multiple counties right now. I would hold up the Young women's freedom center as an example of a. Long time San Francisco provider that also now has a footprint in Alameda and Santa Clara. Which again, helps with that girl's conversation, Um, but we do need to make sure we're bridging. I also wanted to address um, what Commissioner Broadkin asked about why we file on transfer in misdemeanors. It's a really good question commissioner and the answer is they've already been filed on in their home county. It's just getting transferred to us usually after it gets adjudicated in that county. So we're getting it at the end of the case. It's not that we're making a decision to file on the misdemeanor that happened in another county. If that helps answer your question. Because we really very unlikely would we file on those cases here. Which is probably why they get adjudicated there. Before they come to us.
10: Hey, can I add, um, can I ask a question too? Um, Chief Miller and Commissioner Brock, if you can jump in here too. So, Chief Miller, if Juvenile Hall moved forward in December, what has been your process on working with your staff and getting them into other spaces or moving forward? Because you, I mean, if it comes December and they say, oh no, we're we're not far, you know, we're standing our standing our ground we're shutting down. And where? I mean, because I see you have, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to employ people in the process, they tell you you're shutting down. Mm-hmm. I'm a little confused here on like, what, what is your process here on <laughs> saying, hey, you know, let, let me start getting ready, just in case this thing moves forward or when it moves forward. Cause I mean, Commissioner Brockett, feel free to jump in. I mean, you guys, you know, because this is like I'm hiring people, but they're telling me I'm shutting down too. So what is what what is your, you know, so going, we're not, yeah. you, what's your thinking for this?
15: So right now, anybody we're hiring to work in the hall, we're just hiring as as needed counselors, people that we call when we don't have a shift full. They're not. We're not hiring people as like full time positions right now, because let's be honest who would take that job. So, right? Nobody knows what comes next. Um, What what I would say to you commissioner is that uh, President Walton has met with the labor unions related to the hall and has told them. Straight up his own commitment that they will have jobs in the city. and that his intent is for them the people who are interested to go ahead and move into the next version of whatever becomes juvenile detention in san francisco where there are positions where we know we have duplication we are actively working to find other positions in other city departments so i think you've all heard us talk during the budget about like our cooks right we i keep making that terrible joke about having too many cooks in the kitchen and so you know, we are actively working, for example, with Department of Public Health to identify open cook positions they may have and help facilitate that transfer for our folks. We just did that recently with one of our cooks. So we're working on that kind of thing with them. But for the hall counselors who don't have another version of that in the city, we're, we are waiting to see what the next plan is gonna be and how many folks probably will retire and how many would wanna go ahead to the new version. Um, So I haven't been doing that workforce transition because we don't know what we're transitioning to. I will tell you to your question about what happens if it closes, if we were told to just like shut the doors on December 31st and the city didn't have a new place of detention that was approved by the state and the court, our judges under the law have the authority to detain our kids in neighboring counties. And they've been pretty clear that absent a place in San Francisco on January 1st, that that's what they would do for kids who they detain. So um my projection is that the hall continues to operate until something else comes online here.
10: And okay. I guess I guess Commissioner Brockett can ask that ask to add to that, right? On you know, I hear I hear a few things popping up and conversations are being had. So I mean, I haven't been in any other shows. Um, so, uh, I
9: agree with it. I just
10: get what's prayed by.
9: Yeah, I agree with what the chief has said. I, I um you know, to add an air of reality to this, I, I don't think we're at a point where we're ready to close at the end of December. I, I think everybody is very serious about it closing. It's possible it could close by the end of um the calendar year, um, I, to be honest, this is my personal opinion. I think the option, 1 of the options that's been presented to cottages at the uh, Edgewood campus would be better than the juvenile hall and a good alternative. That's not the only alternative that will be considered. Um, the Department of real estate has been asked to find other alternatives, but the truth is. The committee hasn't voted on an alternative. It's a long timeline between even when you say, this is what we want and you get approval from the state, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, if I there's. If I were to guess, I would guess that, you know, the earliest it could happen would be the end of the fiscal year and um, yeah, that's that's my only comment. I. Yeah, okay, but I would say that, you know, supervisor Walton is a very loyal labor person and he is determined to make sure that no one loses their job and you know that there are appropriate alternative positions as they may or may not be needed. So I am relying on him to do that.
10: Oh yeah, I, I don't I don't think you know for me, I don't think anyone is, you know, I've been in a lot of meetings and you know, and um no, I don't think anyone's gonna lose their job. I was just wondering what did the move look like and the, from the juvenile hall i don't think the staff is going anywhere what does that move i was looking at juvenile hall the other day and i was just looking at just the land in itself and what you own up there and you know how these conversations came about and nobody you even thought about like all this property that sit behind the buildings that juvenile in the city owns like nothing was you know I mean, you know, uh, for me, it's baffling that, you know, all these degrees sit at the table and then you just can't figure this out. So for me, it's baffling baffling to me, uh, (laughs) Commissioner. It's so baffling to me. That makes sense. But
9: um, I I do want to say. I don't think there's been money set aside that would allow us to build a whole new sort of home, like, et cetera, et cetera on the property. We already own that is a much more expensive proposition. So, I, I think there are people on the committee who would you know, be happy to see that as an option. Um, I don't know the chief may have an opinion about that. I, I don't see the city or the mayor or anybody prepared to make
10: that a reality.
15: On this here? You're saying in this on this campus?
10: Yeah. To build a building on that campus.
15: Yeah. I mean, people have definitely proposed it. I don't know that it would get legs in the climate that we're doing this process in.
10: Yeah. 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 Yeah, well, I have just say, you know, at some point I can see a developer coming in and saying, you know what, I'll spend a whole bunch of money up in there. So, I mean, let's just be re- realistic, you know, I, I, you know, I run a center. So, I mean, you know, and there's a developer going to come in and say, you know, like, what, what are you guys thinking at the end of the day, you know, with this property, you know, so um, just, it just a thought, it was just a thought.
15: Yeah, I. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you, Commissioner. It's a real yeah.
10: question.
3: <laughs> yes. Other questions or comments for the chief about the remainder of her chief's report? Not
1: seeing any hands raised. <laughs> Thank you, Chief. As Thanks always, everybody. informative and helpful um, to hear everything that's happening and how we can be of assistance um, and shining a light on the issues that are coming forth. like Going off screen. Bye.
2: Uh,
1: at this time, I don't believe I saw program committee. No. So, was there um, Commissioner Brocken, Was there a program committee?
9: Okay. I thank you for letting me speak no there was not a program committee and I want to explain and apologize to people sort of uh, the constant changing of the program committee I'm just trying to be accommodating to the department and then we got a request from one of the judges judge Chan to to be able to come to the meetings um, so I, I just keep switching things just to accommodate other people including to accommodate the department which says you know you're sort of overwhelming us with too many Things to do. So we didn't have a meeting in the last month, but we are now, we will be convening at a time that is convenient for both the chief and the judge, which is Tuesdays, the fourth Thursdays of the month at 3 p.m. And at the request of uh, Supervisor Spangola, the next topic will be log cabin ranch. And I'm sort of frustrated and really want people to get the word out. This will be the first public discussion for overall, like, what do you think? Where, you know, what are your dreams about the ranch? What do you think should happen? It is not a decision-making meeting. And our chief has been really clear. If, for instance, the ranch is to be used as an alternative for DJ. Jay, that you know, decision will be made um, with the Juvenile Justice Coordinating Committee subcommittee. But that you know, a lot of people may think that's a bad idea, including me. But um, so this is just you know, sort of open season. But. Our hearings and our opportunities are only as good as our capacity for outreach, so I am begging <laughs> my fellow program committee members and commissioners I, i've done a special flyer on this meeting, and i, I as a more long term thing. I think we need to look at our mailing list, which is really sort of outdated, has mistakes on it you know is is very limited, and we have to think about you know how to do a better job of getting the word out about our meetings especially when it's a topic of such general interest to the public and there are so many potential uses for this you know wooded property <laughs> that the that the city has and people have ideas about so um so yeah so yeah i hope my fellow commissioners will get a copy of the flyer And help get the word out um, and that at some future time, we can look at sort of the infrastructure of the commission, you know, sort of our mailing list and how we how we, you know, engage
2: people and get the get the word out about. um, What we're doing so it's. December, December. Yeah, you see where I am. July twenty seventh at three p.m.
9: Um, is when the the hearing will take place. And Commissioner Moses and Spangola, please help me get the word out. Yeah, yeah, I,
10: I have, I have been. So, um, and, and yeah, I haven't seen the flyer. If you can, if you want to email me the flyer, that's fine. Um, I can get it out too. Uh, but I have been. I I definitely want to get some people in on this conversation. Let's just see what people's opinions are. Yeah. I mean, we ain't got a bit Ain't us making the decisions, you know, but you know, at least we have the opinions, you know. And you know. same thing with me, we're just looking for the realistic date. If that day
5: is
0: solid now, sure, we'll be glad to circulate the information around.
3: Thank you, commissioners. Thank you,
1: you, Commissioner I mean, Broadkin, as well, for the, for the update. Oh, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I was just to say to Pauline,
9: get everybody the flyer. And so that people can get it out. I also turned it into an email. So I think, you know, I, I will um, email that to Pauline so she can get it out to everyone.
15: Um, I'm sorry to crash you guys again, but um, Commissioner Brodkin, uh, I was in a long conversation with Kriya Gomez the other day and she said that some of the young people she works with. have been asking questions about the future of the ranch. So might want to make sure that she gets the flyer.
3: Thank you chief
1: at this time we will take public comment on item 5 the chiefs report. I believe I see. 1 hand raised, but I'll hand it over to our to let us know um, about public comment and patch on through our. Speakers,
4: you are absolutely correct. There is 1 person. I'll mute them for you right now.
12: Hi, it's Molly Brown. I uh, commend you all for sticking with us so long this (laughs) evening. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, I'm a little blurry at myself. Um, a couple things. 1 is. I think it'd be great at 1 of the commission hearings is to do a deep dive on the out of county youth. Um, it represents a 3rd of all referred youth. And I just think the more we know about them, the better because, um. I don't know that much about what we do with them and what that level of effort is for the POs. And I think it'd be very valuable information. Secondly, I'd like to just point out that if in the past four years, we've had a 52% decrease in cases uh, referred to the probation department, I know we have not seen that decrease in staffing. And so I think this commitment to right-sizing the department through attrition also really needs to have a further examination about what should that number be? What what is our goal in terms of where our staffing numbers should be given the number of youth that we are now serving? Um, I also don't know, it's very hard to find this information. and You can all imagine, I look for it. Um, I don't know how many filled positions we have in the department, in, in the probation department. I know how many are approved, I don't know how many are filled. I think that would be a really wonderful addition to your monthly report from the chief. Um, and lastly, I just want to mention that the close the juvenile hall working group has been talking a lot about using CARC as an intake center for the majority. If not all of youth um, referred to um, the probation department, and I think that would help address a lot of this robbery issue is there could be some haggling that occurs with that phone call from the police about whether or not a youth really should be um arrested for a 707b offense or if it should be dropped down and i would really encourage you to hear more about that um, because it's an important thing in terms of how many youth spend time at the hall thanks so much and i'm hoping it's good night soon <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you um Chief, can I just ask a question about that? About the right sizing issue? Sure. Is that something that um, is it? Are they called 3rd sector?
15: Yeah. Is no. That, you yeah. Thank you for asking and Molly. Thanks for asking too. Yeah, absolutely. So this is. 100% part of what we're going to be doing with 3rd sector is okay. part of the analysis they're going to be doing with us and community together is really figuring out what that right sizing is and that'll be kind of. The collaborative place where we take on that work. So thank you for asking.
1: You said that they would be available to present in October. Was it?
15: I think yeah. I'm looking to Maria. Maria, do you think October that they can be available?
19: Will you ask them tomorrow when you meet with them? Yes. I will ask them tomorrow. Um, I'm sure they would make themselves available anytime, but I agree with Chief Miller that the September agenda is really, really full, and we would be here till even later if we added that as well. So October might just be a perfect alignment.
1: Understood. Thank you for the clarification. Are there uh, further members of the public that would like to speak on item number five, the Chief's report?
4: Uh, we don't have anyone else at this
1: time. And to our secretary, do we have any emails or voicemails?
4: No
2: emails or calls.
1: Thank you. Uh, and I'll just note again for members of the public that are not um, on the WebEx, if they wanted to raise their hand and press star 3 to do so, um, or uh, press the. Raising hand icon in WebEx, and we'll just give it maybe 1 more 2nd. I know we've been here for a while and. We give the public a chance to comment just for maybe 3, 4 more seconds. I'm Not seeing anyone uh, that has a hand raised. Can we confirm that?
4: Yes, we don't have anyone with their hands raised and we don't have any callers. We just have 3 people watching the street.
1: All right, thank you so much. We'll. Close item number 5 and move to item number 6 future agenda items. Are there any future agenda items? I believe I've seen a few pop up in the chat and I don't know if these are agenda items or uh, deep dives. So I just wanted to. See if we can perhaps capture some of these. Um, I don't know if. Our secretaries.
9: I put okay. them on as um, potential agenda items. Okay. You know, it, but we could do it either way the girls, CARC, and the filing of 707Bs, the air report, Um, and our mailing list. I hate to talk about something so mundane, but the, our capacity for outreach. Those are all things that I would like to see in future agendas.
1: And out okay. of county youth as well. Yeah. I, I, that was another one. Um. Yes. Perfect. Any other future agenda items that haven't been captured in the WebEx chat or um, that have been raised?
5: I I think um, the family mosaic, maybe we should invite them over in
0: about six months.
1: Great. I agree.
0: For update. Yeah. (laughs) Any other?
3: Future agenda items seeing none. Uh, Are there any announcements?
1: And I want to just clarify, I know that we've been receiving emails about taking cyber security training and I just wanted to. I believe that that wasn't required for commissioners. Is there uh, to our secretary? Was that ever clarified that that needed to happen for. Uh, commissioners i know that there had been some confusion on that
2: i uh, yes i checked danna and she had said that it could be recommended which i did recommend to everybody because of the training but it wasn't a requirement
1: okay just I, confirming i did mine. i did as well yeah um and it wasn't too long it was maybe 25 30 minutes but wanted to make sure that we were in compliance uh and ensure that we're not in Violation of any executive directives or orders. So, um, but it sounds like we're, it's a recommendation. So we're okay. Um, Are there, and I guess the other announcement, uh, which we've already discussed, but for those uh, members of the public, as well as commissioners, we will not be meeting in August for our usual August recess. Um, So, with that, uh, if there's no more announcements, we can adjourn on the dot at 9 PM Uh, and I wish all of. Uh, Excuse me. I should. I got ahead of myself. Is there any public comment on future gen items or announcements?
4: There is no public comment. We have two listeners at this time, or viewers rather.
1: Thank you. Um, So now we'll move to item number seven. Adjournment. I hope everyone has a good August. uh, And uh, we are now adjourned. The time is nine p.m.
6: Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Have a good one.
1: Thank you.